And the award for best supporting performance on a podcast goes to Brian Salisbury for Digital Noise. Fuck yeah! I got a wait, wait, hold, whoa, 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 supporting. Yeah, what, co-ho- what is that nonsense? It's a huge award. You should be completely honored. Well, what, what, like I, like I'm like the sidekick all of a sudden. Yeah, what does that mean? You're no my assistant, my boy. Oh, forgot. You know what? I should have gotten his best performance for pretending to like you all of this time that we've been doing that. For putting up with you, I think I deserve an act. You know what? I'm the Daniel Day Lewis of putting up with you. You know what? Have this beer and shut the fuck up. Ooh, beer. I'd like to thank Chris and uh, my parents for this beer. Drink. uh, Okay. What's up? It's Digital Noise here on oneofus.net. This is that show that you like. Yeah, that one. That one Not show. Those other ones. <laughs> <laughs> those other ones, they never really loved you. This is, you know, it's funny. I was going to say maybe we're not the best show on the website, but we're the show that drinks the most. But then I realized, that's no, maybe we're not. And, I don't know. And yet the other show that's up for that nomination is both uh, is us as well. So <laughs> it's true. It's a hard call. It's six yeah. of one, half dozen of the other. Six pack of one, half there dozen of go. the other. There yeah. you go. There you go. Half a dozen court ordered rehabbers of the other. Exactly. Hello. Well, this is Digital Noise. We're going to be talking about Blu rays. We're going to talk about DVDs. I'm Brian. I'm Chris. And you already know that, so I don't know why we'd have to introduce ourselves every time. I've just gotten into a routine where I just do that every time. Well, because sometimes I'm Richard. Oh, that's true. You are. Sometimes you're Richard. Sometimes I'm Richard. Yeah, so... Richard's this weird pod person who's able to morph into either one of us at will. Yeah, our whole life is this nebulous David Cronenberg-y type thing that you don't want the details on. It's better than being having a David Fincher life, but we'll get into that oh, in boy, just a moment. <laughs> that's like, people are like, if you could be any character in a movie, what would what character would it be? I'd be like, not a character from any David Fincher movie, no. that's for sure. No, 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 <laughs> fuck no. Uh, I want to remind you that this show is available on iTunes tunes as well as on stitcher you can also follow the show on twitter at digi noisecast that's d-i-g-i noisecast you can also like the website one of us.net on facebook facebook.com slash one of us net and i do want to really encourage you to become a subscriber uh, not only do we have the breakfast pub uh which is you know our weekly news and and trailer recap show that chris and i do but we are in the process of setting up a second subscriber only podcast that i think you're going to be pretty excited about yeah, so we can't tell you any details yet, no details but you know and nothing is written in stone yet either let's be clear but if it is you're gonna go Gee. You're gonna you're gonna, gonna make, make that noise. noises that exact noise so definitely become a subscriber if you already are tell your friends to do the same so, without further ado... We're not drinking, no, that was just soda. No, no, that was that was totally an excitement burp. It was just the enthusiasm I have for doing this show bubbling up and out of my throat as carbon dioxide. <laughs> um, it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. <laughs> You've got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Thank you, Torgo. You're always there for us. But it's because you can't leave. Well, that's true. Have you ever gotten known anyone who had a job for the post office? Yes, that's, that's also very true. You're pretty much doing that till you die. Very much the case. Our first question comes from Adam Pariah. I like your last name because I've been accused of being it. <laughs> 
<laughs> the question is, it seems the trend of rebooting and remaking classic horror movies will not end. That being said, are there any horror movies yet to be remade that you'd be interested in seeing done? Well, of course. Yeah, in fact, we've, over the years of Digital Noise and the show before it... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the show that shall not be named. <laughs> ...have named... Quite a few movies that we've said. You know what? This is one I think would make a valid remake. Yeah, I think this is a question I keep forgetting we've already answered because it comes up every few months. And every every time I'm like, oh, I want to answer that question. I'm probably going to give the exact same answer without knowing it. Well, the thing is, I don't think I would ever pick one of the movies people would be hoping to hear, uh, like one of the classics. Because I think if it is a classic and it works perfectly how it is, 99 times out of 100, you better, you're better off just leaving it alone. True. I mean, there are some exceptions where datedness changes things about it but i will say i would love to see david lynch take on carnival of souls Ooh, yeah can you imagine that that would be pretty awesome that would be pretty fucking awesome i would enjoy that immensely uh, but i also say you know it'd be like a day at the i'm carnival. with the oceans 11 theme take a movie that was pretty good but not maybe an all-time classic really flawed and find a way to make the movie that it, it could have been and i'm gonna go with lucio fulci's the beyond yeah, no, the Beyond's really good at points. Yeah, and really Fulci y at other points well, yeah, in the bad sense of that word. Yeah, that we just made. Up. Well, I, sh- I guess I should say very Italian at yeah. points. Yeah, very seventies <laughs> Italian horror. At yeah, points. but um, it's so twisted and bizarre, and it's got so much cool shit that is in it that I'm like. Somebody could take that, redo it, and make a really, truly frightening movie. There is a, a movie, I don't think we ever got to cover it on the site, but it's called uh, the, the Devil's Business. Mm. It's this low-budget movie about two hitmen who are sent to kill this guy at a house on the same night that something really fucked up is going on at that house. Kind of like to see that guy remake The, the Beyond. Huh, because okay. it just the idea of like going to a place and then all of a sudden unexpectedly being at the doorway to, you know, to the netherworld, to hell itself. Yeah. I think he could do that. I think he could do that in a very understated way that might provide a, a counter to Fulci's very kind of exaggerated tarantulas eating somebody's face and, you know, stepping into a <laughs> sure. painting. You know, it's, it's kind of like if hell had a Narnia... That's where Fulci would live. Hell does have a Narnia. The Cenobites live there. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. <laughs> it's just through the wardrobe, and you'll have all the Turkish delight you can stand. Turkish delight is actually the name of a torture. <laughs> I don't understand. That character from Narnia went insane after only 500 pieces. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with I Bury the Living, which is a great black and white horror film that, although it stands on its own, there's enough that's dated about it that I would like to see a second pass at it. Uh, it feels kind of like a Twilight Zone episode more than a movie, and I think you could make it a little more cinematic and without losing anything that made the concept of the, the concept of the movie is that a guy is the new caretaker slash plot master of a cemetery, and he realizes that if he starts putting there's there's a you know there's a, obviously there a map of the plots on the wall, and then he's got pins that represent different people that have paid for these plots, and he realizes that if he puts the pin in there before they're dead, they die. So it, it is very much like a Twilight Zone concept where a guy is suddenly thrust into the position of having the power of God and, and what that means and what happens and yada, yada, yada. Mm. Uh, also, I would like to see someone else take another crack at Island of Lost Souls. Mostly because, while I think Island of Lost Souls is a decent film, on the, the old black and white version, when they tried to remake it the first time, we got the Island of Doctor... Actually, there was one in the 70s before that, but the most notorious one is the Island of Dr. Moreau, which was... If you've ever seen the, the movie uh, Lost Souls, which is about the making of Island of Dr. Moreau, you understand what a giant clusterfuck that movie was. And I'd kind of like to see somebody do a good version of that story. Um, I, I will throw in as well, and they've been talking about this forever, and it's not clear. I don't 
I'm not sure it's ever actually going to happen. I think right now there's something on the table, even that we'll see if it actually happens or not. But a really good director taking on a remake of Hellraiser, I think, mm. is one of the things that we're going to get a remake of Hellraiser within the next five years, one way or the other. It's going to happen. It may be the only but, one that isn't done by Platinum Dunes. <laughs> right. You know? But, like, can you, like, somebody like Ty West taking it on and trying to make it a lot more subtle, a lot more atmospheric, I think could be a really, truly frightening movie. House of or the Cinemite. The director of The Babadook, just throwing that out yeah, there. Yeah, that would be a good one. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Yes. Good call. All right. Well, the other question, instead of picking a specific question for the other one, 90% of the questions in the letterbox this week were about the Oscar nominations that just came out today. So I'm just going to say in general, Chris, what were your, what was your reaction to the Oscar nominations as a whole? I'm going to say what everybody wants me to say because it's true. You guys seriously didn't nominate the Lego movie for best animated film. Shit. I, mean, I don't even understand. Has there been any released statement about this, about why I, they didn't I, I'm it? telling you, dude, that thing that, I, that we talked about on, on The Breakfast Pub, my theory about why it didn't win the Golden Globe, I think is the exact same reason it didn't get nominated for an Oscar. I think the old white men that composed 90% of the Academy Board didn't even watch that movie because they're like, oh, it's a movie about Legos? Fuck that. Right. It could You could be right. I mean, certainly there's been no end of stories about how the, the nominating crews for all, all these various big watches don't even watch everything that they should be watching. Yeah. I mean, all the time those stories come out. It's like, yeah, I did it for 10 years and I've watched like two or three of any given category. And you're like going, so ridiculous. Well, then, you know what? I mean, it's one thing if you're like some tiny little association somewhere, but when you're like, the biggest award ceremonies in the world, yeah, you pretty much owe it to everyone to sit down and take the time to watch everything that that is every everybody else is calling for yeah. these categories. That being said, I think there was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of just, okay, obvious stuff this year, certainly. The best picture, I, I personally felt everything that was nominated is stuff that was either no-brainer or stuff that maybe, I that stuff that I totally loved and I'm happy to see, or even some stuff that I wasn't as thrilled about as everybody else, but... Still, I I can see why it was really nominated. Like uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, and I genuinely like the Grand Budapest Hotel. But I thought it was not one of his best films. But a lot m- most people disagree with me, so fair enough. The only thing on there I thought at all was like, God damn it, can we stop pretending that this is a really good movie for a second and call it for what it is—a very triacly, you know, grandma pleasing film, which is the theory of everything. You know, like okay decently entertaining enough for its saccharineness, mm. but it's not anything that I would even imagine under thinking of the best of the year. Really yeah. pleased to see Whiplash got in there because sure. a lot of people were saying they were going to leave that out. Um, yeah, so, so, so good. If you haven't seen that yet, if you haven't taken time to see that, oh, for Christ's sakes, go and see that. Do it. Just do it. Just do it. I, I'm really surprised both because of what the movie was and because of the, the quality of the performance that David uh, Oyelowo was not nominated for Selma. Pretty startling. And even though the movie was nominated for Best Picture, no nomination for the director, which makes the ninth time that a female director was not nominated when the picture was. I don't understand that. I really, I don't understand the concept of nominating a movie for Best Picture, not nominating the director for best director. No, I kind of I understand it's a numbers game because you can have up to 10 fucking movies nominated for best picture and you still have only 5 people nominated for best director. But I don't understand in this situation what it it, it and you know what somebody you know, somebody was complaining that they thought both uh the director of Selma and Angelina Jolie should have gotten a nomination. I'm like, "Okay, I will go with you on the director of Selma." 
Unbroken is not a good movie, and no. a lot of the problems it has stem from poor direction. Absolutely. So let's not just like say every female director should be nominated for an Oscar because of course, they've of course. because they've had a history of snubbing them. Depends on the quality of the film. It absolutely does. But uh, Anna uh, Duvernay, I believe, is her last name, who directed Selma, absolutely fucking deserved to be nominated. She, she did. She pulled off a task that I w- that was incredibly difficult. It really was to tell that story so balanced and nuanced and not make it seem seem at all preachy and like actually make MLK so human. I mean, working with this huge cast of people, it was really quite a feat that she pulled off. And I totally feel like she deserved credit for it. I mean, there was a lot of like, I guess we have to nominate them because... You know, they're Robert Duvall and they're getting old. We don't know when yeah. we'll get another chance to nominate him for the. I call that the Christopher Plummer Award. For the judge, where you're like, uh, seriously, I mean, it's not like I'm going to say he was bad or anything, but it was not a particularly noteworthy performance this year. Or there's ones like uh, Ethan Hawke as well for Boyhood, which is playing. Nothing that's anything vaguely resembling a stretch for him at all. He's playing Ethan Hawke. I mean, like, I that mean, movie's gotten, getting more credit than it should past director, which I think mm-hmm. totally deserves the nomination sure. uh, for what it did, like the, how long it took to make. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that performance was worth a, worth a nomination. I mean, that one's uh, going to be a, a knockdown dragout fight between Edward Norton for Birdman, Mark Ruffalo for Foxcatcher, and J.K. Simmons for Whiplash. You know, all three, whoa, performances. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same with actress in a supporting role, Laura Dern for Wild. May I remind you she's barely in that fucking movie? <laughs> like, yeah. barely in that there's, movie. There's a lot of things like that I don't know. First of all, going back to the Lego movie for a second, not only did they not nominate Lego movie, but in its place, they nominated Song of the Sea, which, like, three people in the world saw. Well, you know what? I would feel better about that sort of thing if they bothered to send that sort of stuff out to critics. I mean, I couldn't believe they sent out the tale of Princess Kaguya, which is terrific. No question. It wouldn't be my pick for best of the year, but it's really good. They actually sent out screeners of that. Good for them. Song of the Sea? Nothing. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm kind of like, when did anybody get a chance to even see this? And yeah. I suspect part of the reason why the foreign picks and animated features have rarely won. I don't, I don't know if they've ever won, uh, is because those fall under the category of screeners that those Oscar viewers just don't end up watching. Yeah. And, and I'm, I don't, I'm not going to do the crash thing. I'm not going to start retroactively hating on a movie I like just because it's nominated when I don't think it deserves to be, which is, I think, what happened with Crash. Yeah. I really don't think Crash is a bad movie. And I think everybody was fine with it until it won Best Picture. And then it became the worst movie ever made. The reaction to that was baffling. But anyway, it really was. But I'm not, but Big Hero 6 being nominated for Best Animated Film feels like a Disney gimme. Feels like it's Disney. We have to nominate something Disney does because it's like, it's good, but really better than the Lego movie. I just, I don't, I'm sorry. That that just kind of blows my and, mind. And a I will bit. say this of documentary feature. I've only seen one of them, Citizen Four, which has been this critic's darling, even though, under my opinion, it's this really important document of something that happened and not really a movie at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is important footage to use in court or something. Not so much a documentary movies per se. Um, and I've never seen the other four that were nominated, but like the internet's own boy, Aaron Schwartz, which I think is kind of a masterpiece. And, uh, uh, what is the other one I'm missing? Uh, the draft house feature. The overnighters. One. The overnighters has been mm-hmm. well spoken of. Yeah. It's like there's a couple different things in there. I was like, okay, no, and oh my god, they didn't nominate the Roger Ebert documentary. That's bullshit. Which had to come as a major slap in the face. 
I was going to make a terrible joke about a slap in the side of the face you still have, but uh, I won't do that because I'm a good person. It, it is hard to watch that movie because of those points where he's like, he looks like he's got this perpetual smile the because of what guy, they did, yeah. but then his whole lower half of his face is just kind of hanging there and you can see right through it and you're like, God, this is, oh God, I feel so bad for you, but at the same time you are so fucking creepy. In hindsight, <laughs> I, I feel very bad for what I just said. Um, yeah. I will say... A testament to Roger Deakins is that he got nominated for cinematography for Unbroken in a movie that deserves no other nomination whatsoever. Yeah, very true. Well, he's Roger Deakins. He's like he shoots much, the shit out of everything. He could make anything, and it's like he could make the worst movie of the year, and he'd still get a cinematography nomination because yeah. he's Roger Deakins and he's a bad. If he had shot Tusk, I would feel better about Tusk. I'm yeah, just I'm not, just gonna throw I'm that out sure there. There's a way to feel better about Tusk, but because there are certain scenes in Tusk where it looks like they lit it with halogen lights from a supermarket, and it's like this is fucking atrocious. Shot, As is the entire movie. If he had shot the Britney Murphy story, I'd be like, well, we're clearly living in Bizarro World, because that would never happen. Um, also, best adapted screenplay for Inherent Vice. Don't you have to, like, I don't know, maybe it's because the book is also kind of obfuscating, yeah. but it's like, man, I don't like the script for that movie at all. Like, I don't no. I don't like the, the way it plays out at all. It's, it's bizarre to me that that movie has even become controversial of whether it's good or bad. I have friends whose opinion I really respect, who love that movie so much, and I'm like... Okay, if you say so. I just want to be polite, because if I get into this with you, I'm not going to be polite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to know that you can have (laughs) tactful discussions with people. Well, you know there are those movies that you did have a strong negative emotional reaction to, or positive even, and then someone has the exact opposite reaction, you're like... I don't even understand where you're coming from. Oh, dude, it's the, you know what the worst is, is when you're on a date with a girl and she's like, yeah, I really like that Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland. You're like, you're so cute. Don't, Brian, don't. Just leave it alone, Brian. And then I'm like, no, fuck you. You walk home. God damn it. Going home alone again. I could live with that. It'd be like if she like, have you seen the Atlas Shrugged movies? (laughs) I'd be like, okay, now you seriously have to get out of my car. Get get out, get out. Don't look at me. Just get out of the car. Uh, A lot of people are pissed off in Austin, especially because Force Majeure did not get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. I did enjoy Force Majeure, but I don't think it was necessarily a shoe-in for Best Foreign Language Film the way a lot of other people did. Uh, or even Best Film, as some mm-hmm. people put in their list. I'm like, yeah, it's a really smart, like, interesting little film. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, of that list, I haven't seen Ida yet, which people tell me is wonderful. But Wild Tales is one of the most fun movies to come out in 2014. It's so crazy. It's a, it's like a, it's a anthology about uh, revenge. And it is so much fun. It sounds good. <laughs> just very black humor, just outright funny as hell and scary as shit at others. Really recommend that. It's no way in hell going to win Best Foreign Language Film, but yeah, good stuff. Fair enough. Well, that's kind of a, a broad, over overarching uh, view of our opinions on the Oscar nominations. And now we're going to go ahead and close the lid on the letterbox and get into the review. And we're going to start... I like how you lilted there. I know, right? That was nice. It's not exactly harmonizing. It's just drinking. (laughs) Uh, We're going to start with Gone Baby Girl Gone. Gone Baby Girl Gone? Yeah, isn't that that the new Ben Affleck movie? No, no. It's just Gone Girl. Oh, okay. Girl, you gone. (laughs) Girl, you so gone, you don't even know it. Um, I will say this. Uh, right off the bat, I'm going to warn you, this is going to be a spoiler Super duper spoilery review. Because... As I think our actual review probably was, because there's really not a good way to talk about this movie without spoiling it. I don't know how you can talk about this movie without spoiling it. I mean, I read a review that tried so carefully to dance around it, but even that couldn't get past 
the fact that like uh, Rosamund Pike, who's being nominated for Best Supporting Actress this year, is playing the villain of the film. Yeah, and that itself is a huge spoiler. Huge spoiler. Um, and, you know, did you see those weird like promotional ads where Ben Affleck is lying sort of upside down from her, and she's clearly a corpse? No. Yeah, they, there was a bunch of promotional ads where it was that, and I was like watching the whole movie going, great, I know she actually dies in this. And then, no. No. <laughs> it's like, so much worse. What the fuck was that? It is so, the ending of this movie is so fucking torturous because neither of them die. Because they're forced to be together and knowing like, each knowing about the other, and him especially knowing what she is and what she's capable of. And because of what he's done, having to uphold that lie and pretend everything's okay and living with... Oh, my God. It's like, oh, that's why I said in our review, like, remember the good old days when David Fincher villains just cut your head off and put it in a box? Right. Like, when they were merciful like that? Like, this is not a merciful David David Fincher movie. This is the second scariest David Fincher movie after Seven. Yeah. I, and <laughs> I, it really is I mean it's it's more similar it's not like seven at all. Let me be no, clear about no, that. No, 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 no. But it's more akin to sort of like the the uh Scandinavian like police procedural type films and psychological murder films that have been coming out over the last decade that it's very slowly paced. It's very based on incredibly strong performances from from all its characters. And it relies on like a mid a mid-film twist that mm-hmm. changes your perceptions of everything that you've seen before. In this case, of course, being that, like, while the whole first half of the film, you're asking yourself as the facts build up, did Ben Affleck actually murder his wife? Did he do something with her? What's going on? Because mm-hmm. at first we're like, no, he's outraged. There's no way he did this. But as it goes along, little pieces start adding up. Like, he was having an affair with a 20-something-year-old college student. Yeah. You start questioning, okay, did he do it? And that's the greatest red herring is not who killed her, but... Who killed her? You know what I mean? Like, it's not about, like, thinking Ben Affleck killed her when really somebody else. It's like, you're so focused on whether or not Ben Affleck killed her, you never ask yourself the question, is she dead at all? Right. And they do it a wonderful job of misdirection, uh, you know, just pointing you in every other single way, but the answer that's coming. Now, what, whereas I suspected it, because a movie that long and the point where it was at, I was like, this can't keep going the way it is. Something big has to change really soon, everything, or it's going to be ridiculously dragged out. Mm, yeah. uh, and sure enough, when it does, then you have to re-examine everything you've told yourself. And here's the thing. There's some amount of controversy about this film that is is valid in the sense that it's contextually in the in period of our times having a female villain who fakes being raped, who... uh you know, is intentionally manip- manipulating and misleading this man to make him look like a villain when when he didn't actually do anything, certainly in the context of the times, that can be very troublesome. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, I feel like that's a gut reaction that they knew when making this movie it was going to happen in some circles. And the film has a the only real subtext that I felt like it had here. It's not saying, it's not trying to say anything misogynist in the slightest. It is trying to say... Through its whole, like, look how the media and cultural, the cultural place where we're in manipulates information and manipulates our perception of information, how we perceive things, how easy it is to perceive things different ways. Where for Ben Affleck, even his own sister, who his twin sister is starting to doubt that maybe Mm -hmm. he actually killed his wife uh, because of this immersive media environment around him. I think to some level, the film is trying to say, look, 
give women all the credit they deserve. They're just as crazy, as, uh, capable of being violent, crazy psychopaths as men are. <laughs> I And I want to offer this counter to that argument as well, is like, why is it that she is able to get away with this not once, but twice? The reason she's able to get away with it is because as a gender... Men, we have fucked ourselves. We have behaved so badly for so long that there is no reason to doubt anything she says. And to me, that's actually sort of a feminist statement. It's like, you've been fucking up, men, for so long. You have been ruining not only women, but like civilization for so long that we are more inclined to believe a character that is revealed to be completely out of her mind than we are a guy who is revealed to be, for the most part, a really nice guy. Well, because, well uh, you know, apart yeah. from his dalliances with this girl, I'm not saying he's perfect. No. But we're more inclined to believe her as, as a media culture because of how fucking awful men are. And to me, that's not a chauvinistic statement whatsoever. And I don't think that it's a perfectly executed maneuver. It's a delicate thing to pull off right now. And I don't think in terms of that, it pulls it off completely. Yes, it is still troublesome as a film. There are more people than not who already are misogynists who are going to take this film and champion it as, look at that crazy bitch. Woman of crazy bitches. Yeah, which is fundamentally missing the point, in my opinion. uh, Yes, but my only point is that I think that maybe it's... Like I say, it didn't quite stick the landing as far as the subtext goes. But if you erase all that, you erase the culture and like being concerned about that sort of thing away from it, you get a phenomenally frightening, incredibly well acted, incredibly well directed, incredibly well scored by Mm -hmm. uh, Trent Reznor and his writing partner. Atticus Ross. I wanted to say Atticus Finch. I almost did too. (laughs) Who also, by the way, were not nominated for their score. Yeah, and well should have been. And it's funny, like that score for them was incredibly subtle. Mm -hmm. And yet... Go back, like, just go back and watch that movie and just listen to the score. And it is this really effectively, like, rattling your nerves just under the surface. Like, you just very almost Hitchcocky type piece. Mm-hmm. Really, really good it's stuff. It's a great score. Um, yeah, I thought this movie was phenomenal. The only part that took me out of it at all, and I hate to say this, this is horrible, but watching Neil Patrick Harris trying to have sex with Rosamund Pike was a little like, Seriously, <laughs> I'm sorry. You need to you need to watch more How I Met Your Mother because I watched that show knowing full well after he'd come out and he was still on that show. I was like, well, he's gay, right? Doesn't change the believability of Barney hooking up with chicks. I don't know what it is. Well, maybe he's so good I, at it. Maybe if I'd watch that show, that's don't what get I'm me saying. Wrong. I totally, I am of the cult of Neil Patrick Harris. I think he's fucking amazing. MPH for life. Uh, but I just it, that's such a critically frightening and intense part of the film that a hundred percent buying into him, like being this sort of, I'm so obsessed with you guy. I, I, I just a little bit pulled me out of it. I, I felt like we were watching the death of Barney Stinson. Like I thought that's what this is like <laughs> the, the inevitable conclusion to the life of Barney Stinson. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, ben Affleck. So good. Really kind of startled that he hasn't gotten any notice for his performance yeah. in here. I thought he did a great job. Rosamund Pike, clearly the performance of the film just knocked out, of, knocked it out of the park. You're not going to be able to forget her anytime soon after this movie. And yeah. I expect we'll be seeing her in many more big films after this. Even Tyler Perry, for Christ's sakes, does a good job in here as the sort of like the super lawyer who comes in to Ben Affleck's defense. Um, Tyler Perry's You Can't Do Bad Without My Say So. <laughs> Medea's You Fucked Her and Then You Killed Her, Didn't You? <laughs> <laughs> See, I would watch those Tyler Perry movies. I'm just saying. Um, now, this Blu-ray 
has got a really attractive case. It's really good looking. It comes with a... But it will kill you, so don't marry it. Right. It comes with a book of Amazing Amy that they made just for it, you know, <laughs> which yeah. is the children's book that, like, the idea is that Rosamund Pike, I know some of you guys listening to this don't care about spoilers and just want to hear the reviews anyway. So for you guys, Amazing Amy is the children's book character that, that Rosamund Pike's parents in the movie wrote about her growing up that was always very, you know, this is the daughter we wish we had sort of thing and a weird sort of like subtle abuse, <laughs> child abuse. Uh, and the book in question is called Tattletale, where she, Amazing Amy, learns lessons about how important it is to tell the truth, even when you know you easily could blame somebody else for something you did yourself. Hmm. Just dripping with irony. Foreshadow. <laughs> uh, but... The Blu-ray only has one actual digital extra, which seems strange. That is strange. But you go, ah, that's so. They can release a special edition a year of from now. Of course, yes. Um, and that is a commentary with David Fincher that I've not gotten the chance to listen to. But apparently it's funny, which is what you would not, something you would nope. expect. With Fincher, like, just kind of having fun with making fun of himself and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that could be. I don't even want to listen to it, kind of. You know? Yeah, because, I'm a little like, creeped out by I'm not that. sure I want to watch that movie Maybe that's what he's going for. Is like, the creepiest thing I could do is be funny. Yeah. Because I'm David Fincher. Maybe so. But um, still, it's one of those movies that, I mean, just to be part of the cultural conversation, if nothing else, you really should watch This, this is movie. one of my absolute favorite movies of last year. This probably, I think, if I'm, try I'm trying to remember the exact order of my list. That I had to submit. I think it was number three. So. I would have. I had not seen this till just today. So uh, if I went back and did my list now, I would have put it on my list. It's it is, just it is, so good. It's phenomenal because even as a thriller, even playing by a lot of the rules of a thriller, it still finds a way to surprise you over and over and over and over again. Yeah, and I beg And it's you. the anti-date movie, so don't take anybody no. that you want to... Not even if you want to marry, just if you want to hook up with somebody, definitely don't take them to see no, this movie. No, no. Um, I beg of you, if you do, if you know you're going to come into this with some baggage, just do your best to try and keep an open mind that David Venture and company, I mean, with Ben Affleck, who is like the most liberal guy in the world next to Alec Baldwin, you know, there's no way they went into this not having thought out the angles and going, yeah, you know what? We're just going to make a misogynist movie. Who cares? That is not what's happening no. here. And if you tell yourself that, that's because you're very angry and deservedly so by what's going on in our culture. Take a step back and just try and appreciate this as a movie as it is, and it's just so good. Truth. And now we're going to talk about uh, Harvey Dent being played by Betty Draper. Wait, what? The Two Faces of January? Is that not what this is about? Uh, Two-Faced January Jones? Uh, no. No? Okay, I didn't see this. I was like, wait, she's not in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, Confusion. I don't know what's happening. Roundabout. <laughs> You get your roundabout, you make me scream and shout. Oh, wait, you're too young. You don't know. No, I have no idea what you're that's, talking that's, about. That's a song by Yes, which is well before both of our time. I like Owner of a Lonely Heart and none of the other Yes songs I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, well, you like the one that was made specifically for people like you. Yep. <laughs> Drum riff. Bam, 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 bam. That and Leave It. No, no. So the same is. album? You never heard Leave It? No. You'd like Leave It. I'll play I probably it for leave time. It. It's one of Martin's favorite songs. Anyway, um, Two Faces of January is based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Now, you're like, wait, that name sounds familiar. That's because the talented Mr. Ripley and the whole series of Ripley books are the, the Patricia Highsmith ah, canon. Nice. And this is not a Ripley novel. However, 
it has a very Ripley feel to it. There's no, in fact, I didn't realize as I was watching it, it was Highsmith because during the opening credits, I was kind of playing with my phone like a terrible critic. And Damn it, Chris. Yeah, I know. But about halfway through it, I paused it, looked it up on Wikipedia. I was like, yep, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> so you made amends for that by immediately going to Wikipedia and looking at your computer instead of watching the movie. I paused it. <laughs> <laughs> Therein lies the crucial piece of information. It, it does indeed. This is why you must find my client. You cannot acquit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you're a cock, Grin. Yeah. yeah. If, <laughs> <laughs> if his computer was sending some bits, you must have quit. I don't know. Some Pete Townsend's defense? What I, is that? I don't, I don't know, know what that is. Well, no, this is Pete Townsend's defense. What? <laughs> Sorry. That was wow. terrible. That was really offensive. Next week on our music podcast, which is not this one. <laughs> so sorry. Um, this is a, a film based on her 1964 novel, the same name, with Viggo Mortensen and Christ- Kristen Dunst, who played this couple that are tooling around uh, Turkey and Greece and, you know, clearly have a lot of money. And they just, they really, mm, even though she's a lot. Turkey, Greece. <laughs> That is pretty good. Mm. Um, even though she's a lot younger than him, they clearly really care about each other and are fresh, relatively freshly married and having fun. And they meet up with Oscar Isaac. Yes, Oscar Isaac, the guy who's going to be playing Apocalypse. The guy who's going to be movie. who is going to be almost as big as Chris Pratt in a couple of years. <laughs> well, we'll see. He's got to build some abs first. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, and. He's kind of a grifter, not like in a huge way, in a very small 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there type of way, Mm -hmm. where he takes, you know, he goes, I'm a tour guide for tourists. Oh, you don't speak uh, Turkish? Well, no problem. I do. And then I'll take care of this transaction for you. And then, you know, doesn't give them all the money that the, you know, overcharges, what have you. (gasps) Shakus. Anyway, he's not like, he's like a likable grifter, but he's still a grifter. And he meets up with these two and he's, even though he's grifting them to some extent, He's still kind of taken with him. He genuinely likes him and clearly kind of, ha- kind of has a hard on for Kristen Dunst because I totally understand. Um, eh. I mean, she's not everybody's cup of tea. For me, yeah, I would totally sit with her in a teacup. Fair and, enough. And terrible things would happen. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just, I was thinking, I know it doesn't apply to this situation at all, but there's a great bit uh, Aziz Ansari does in his stand-up where he says, I don't watch... Uh, I know a lot of people watch Jersey Shore. I don't. Not my cup of tea. Mostly because I don't like giant pieces of shit in my tea. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought that was the that was the best reaction to the cup of tea metaphor I've ever heard. But anyway, so uh, it looks as it goes along, it becomes clear that maybe the Vigo is not everything he seems to be. In fact, he's on the run from some pretty nasty gangsters because he stole a whole bunch of money. Uh-oh. Uh, and Oscar Isaac's character kind of stays with them along the way, kind of trying to help him out. But everything starts to go sideways as they do in these scenarios. Oh, let me guess. Because of a love triangle. Sort of. Sort of. I mean, it's there, but it's not ever really, like, it's brought to the surface in a way that you don't know if it's actually really pertinent or not. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's clear right. he's attracted to her, but you're never really sure if anything actually really happened or not, if it went there. It's not ultimately important whether or not it did. What's important is that Viggo Mortensen's character thinks it may have. Mm-hmm. And thus more troubles develop as the threesome end up becoming more and more fractured along the way. As Eric herself, Kristen Dunst had no idea that his money was stolen and came from all this stuff. And she's starting to become separate from him and yada yada. And it really is a pretty solid little, like, brightly lit noir thriller, if you will. 
It's <laughs> brightly lit, not terribly, lit noir. Not terribly chiaroscuro as it's on like the beaches of, of Greece, but <laughs> the wet beaches and the streetlights. <laughs> no, no, no. They're not. They're, yeah. They're, it's not the same effect on sand. They're actually drawing like uh, highway lines down the middle of the sand. <laughs> It's wet and there's no, it's a noir. Get it? All right. No, 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 not so much. But it's not what I'd call like one of the greatest films ever to come out in this re- in the recent genres. A lot better choices than this, but solid little noir thriller. Great performances all around. Ultimately, well worth your time. Fair enough. And now we're going to get into a discussion of one of the most talked about movies of the last couple weeks. Which would that be? Boyhood. Oh, yeah. And I, and I say that. I know, uh, you know a lot of us have been talking about it for a long time, but it seems like America has really taken hold of this movie in the last couple of weeks. Well, they certainly did because it won the Golden Globe for Best Picture and Best Director. And people are like, oh, my God, did you see this movie? I didn't even know about this And then, movie. of course, it's been nominated now for Best Picture, Best Director at the Oscars as well. Boyhood is a, uh, I'm going to call it a, a docu-narrative. And I think Richard Linklater has succeeded in creating a new genre that blends documentary with a dramatic narrative because it is a film that takes place over 12 years of one boy's life. Uh, uh, This actor who, when they started shooting the movie, was six years old. And then what they would do is that every year for the next 12 years of his life, Richard Linklater would call everybody back together and they would shoot... um, You know, they would shoot a few scenes, and then after the 12 years is over, he takes all of the footage, everything that he's been working on, and compiles it into one story that literally takes us from the the very onset of of manhood all the way to actual manhood. I mean, with the help of the actors as well. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. It's structured like a documentary, but the thing is that they're all actors playing out a scripted narrative. Yes, and one of the ones that every time they would get together, they would write the script as they went, based on what was actually going on in Ephraim Cochran's life. Is that mm-hmm. his name, Ephraim Cochran? Ephraim. Mm-hmm. Ephraim. Wait, no, I said Cochran, though. I think oh, Cochran. Totally no, I, no, I don't think it's Cochran. I think that's the guy who invented the warp drive on Star Trek. <laughs> 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 Probably, yeah. Uh, and what was going on in Richard Linklater's daughter's mm-hmm. life, who's one of the, who plays his sister in the film. Oh, I'm sorry, his name's Mason. Eller, no, L.R. Coulson. Eller, the actor Eller, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. not yeah. Ephraim. Okay, got no, it. No, not Ephraim. Same man. page, same yeah, page. I was totally on, I don't know what the fuck I was talking about. Some of, uh, yeah, you know. You Ephraimed that in the A is what happened. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of a bunch of people in Austin who probably were high half the time. Smoking, thinking their city was the best place in the world. Being mad at anyone who moved there. Wearing ironic mustaches. Wearing ironic mustaches. These are the voyages of the starship Richard Linkletter. It's not a starship. It's just a PBR tall boy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, and people in Austin, obviously, like, couldn't be more thrilled. I mean, I'm, like, a fan of Boyhood. I don't think it's best picture of the year. I think it's a very well done movie. Um, and I couldn't be more thrilled for Austin as well, even though I wouldn't have picked it for best picture. Might have given best director if for no other reason of that, wow, what an undertaking that is to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, yes, the director should be credited for. I'm not sure that by default makes it the best movie, but yes. I, I'm not always of the opinion that the the reach or the aim of a movie is enough to grant it a lot of credit. Uh, just because you were trying to do something different doesn't always mean that you make a movie worth talking about. Sure. But I will say that the performances are strong enough, that the story is strong enough here, that it is an interesting movie. It, and it's it's very, very 
almost frighteningly authentic. Like you yeah. really like if you've ever been, it doesn't even you don't even have to have grown up in Texas. I certainly didn't, but just the 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 various experiences of boyhood that are captured within the movie are universal to almost every male watching the movie. Of course. And, and I think that that authenticity comes from the way that it was shot. So you can't immediately write this off as a gimmick because the way that it was shot, the actual growing up of an actor over the course of time and informing the growing up of a character, I mean, that's the reason the movie is so authentic. So I think he's been able, I think Linkletter's been able to capture uh, a genuine quality to, uh, you know, coming of age story that we haven't seen in any other drama because it's not rushed, because it's not somebody completely recalling from memory, a screenwriter at 40 years old recalling from memory every significant point in their childhood. This is somebody who was watching their lead, their star grow up in front of them, in front of the camera and, and developing the script around that. And right. I think that's what makes this movie so authentic. I mean, I agree with you. I will say I'm not entirely convinced it's completely as original as some people are claiming. There's a long series of British documentaries called the up series where it started with seven up and went on with doing it every couple of years with a new documentary following these children. And now it's at 56 up. Right. But I mean, no know. one's ever tried to do that as a dramatic, as narrative. a dramatic narrative. No, no one's ever tried to for- do that. That. Full credit for that. But that being said, I think that the, the sense in which it's it's real enough that it feels more like a documentary a lot of the time than it does a dramatic Which I think is what can affect – and, and here's the caveat to all of this is I think Boyhood's a really fantastic movie that I will probably never watch again. Yeah. I think the performance is great. I think the story is very compelling. But at the same time <sighs> – Okay. Like, yeah, all right. I, I didn't, it wasn't revelatory in the things that happen in the story. It was revelatory in the structure, in the composition. It wasn't revelatory in the story itself. Yeah. No, I mean, it's very simple. It's very, you know, heartwarming when it's supposed to be and slightly angering when it's supposed to be. It's supposed to bring back your own memories. Of it's folksy. And growing up. It's folksy, but it never really ultimately feels like it has a goal other than to just record this. There's yeah. no, feeling of it being circular on any level it's just you're kind of a fly on the wall for these people's experiences and as such it is it i mean it's done as well as you can do that sort of thing no question but it's going to depend on what your adherence is to the art of the story because it doesn't really have one a story it's the most aggressively verite of cinema verite (laughs) it kind of is uh this blu-ray only comes with two extras there's a uh feature called uh, about 20 minute feature called the 12 year project uh project that kind of looks through the you know how they made it and then there's a q a with richard linkletter in the cast that's almost an hour long with richard linkletter lorelei linkletter ella coltrane patricia arquette and ethan hawk where they uh in los angeles at a screening out there at the silent movie theater they <laughs> did a q a basically with the audience so i i wonder what it's going to be like for eller now like i i feel like it's going to be the same thing as like a kid who was born in a test tube and raised in a lab, yeah. and then the lab closes down. He's going to be insufferable. He's like, I don't know, what do I do now? There's not a camera. How do I just live my life? There's not a camera in front of the me. The thing that made me feel worse for him than anything else was that he's not particularly that good of an actor. He's sellable. You believe it as much as you need to. But there was nothing about his performance that said, wow, this kid is great. Yeah, And that him going on and as an actor kind of depended on that being a thing. Because well, I have a feeling when we see him cast in something else, it's 
we're not going to have that gimmick back to rely on watching yeah. him grow up. It's just going to be, hey, it's just, it's now you've got to just sell based on your skills. Well, that's, I don't know if he's got that. That's what makes it a double gamble, though. It's like, not only are you casting a child actor to lead your movie, you, you're you betting that he's going to be a once-in-future thespian and continue yeah. to be decent enough to carry the movie all throughout because you can't recast him nope. because then the integrity of what you're doing completely falls what apart. What would happen if one of the main characters had died during like? Oh, my God. I'm sure Linklater was like, Ethan, uh, you're, you're good, right? You're not doing any drugs. You're not <laughs> driving really fast. Everybody make sure to take your vitamins. Like, I'm sure Linkletter was scared at every step of the way. And yeah. that's why, that's another reason I think he deserves an Oscar for Best Director because that's a fucking undertaking and a half. Keeping Ethan Hawken from drinking himself to death? No, I just, <laughs> I, I just meant like de- making the decision that we are going to keep up with this for 12 years. And he made other movies in the interim. Oh, yeah. That's the really interesting part is like, this isn't the only thing he was doing for 12 years. Well, this was the once a year get together for a few weeks and film and write and film and then go back about your business thing. Yep. It was like one of those, eventually we'll probably finish this. Maybe we'll never finish it. But yeah. Let's see what happens. Not locking them in a room with protein cubes to keep them alive <laughs> to make sure they were ready to come back each time. That's the boldness of Richard Linkletter. Indeed. All right. Well, moving on from boyhood, we're going to turn on some TV. I don't understand what does that mean. We got a lot of TV shows to talk about, and I've actually arranged these, I shit you not, in the order of the season number that we have to talk about. Oh, good Lord. So we're going to start with Black Sails Season 1 that I didn't get to see, so Chris, take it away. I am glad that you decided that you didn't need to see this. <laughs> and we're starting off with a bang. My structure is infallible. I know there are some people out there like this. It got nominated. It got... You know, it got a second season as opposed to there was a rival show with Jeremy Irons that came out that I actually quite liked for its whole corniness. And Called Borgia Sales. <laughs> well, it was just much more broad. It was like just much more fun. Black Sales is, you know, it's a pirate show that wants so badly to be taken seriously. And yet at the same time, it's, uh, let me say this. It's one of those shows that takes every possible opportunity, like most of the shows on Stars, to show you boobs and blood whenever possible, even if it doesn't really belong in the narrative at that Waiting point. Waiting for the problem section okay. of the review. Okay. It just, it's, you know, you have those things where you do that and then you're like, okay, I feel like I'm being manipulated here. Not that you're giving me anything that I'm like. It's <laughs> you just like you're being distracted by tits. Yeah. Hey, look over here. Look, look, look. Look, tits, at, the tits. Boobs, look at the boobs. Yeah, but that, that story doesn't. Hey, tits, tits. Look over here, tits. You know, and there's nobody in particular here that I was just screaming out to see their boobs either. Oh, wow. I know that's the, sorry, that's the terrible man part of me either. I was like, yeah, they're all attractive, but nobody. Take comes. you and your terrible man parts and get out. I mean, the hottest woman in this, they dirty up like crazy. Who's this like, sort of like. I, I'm never quite clear. I think she used to be a hooker, maybe, and now she's a pirate herself. She's a captain she's hooker. She's always covered with grit and grime, and she has a couple sex scenes, and when she does, she has an afro pubes, you know, like the big, like, uh, just yeah. crazy people in the 70s on porn had nothing on you pubes. Yeah. You're like, God, I mean, I'm not saying you got to shave or anything. I'm just saying, you know, I, I, I manscape. So I'm not being a hypocrite. Looks like Jules, it looks like Jules Winfield is perpetually going down on her. That's what it looks like. And I apologize for everyone out there for having to think about me and my pubes for a second. Let me just say yeah. that. I, I'm glad I was making my Pulp Fiction reference in my head and not listening to what you were saying because I missed that part. But thank you for bringing it back into stark focus. You're welcome. I'll save someone a Ziploc bag for you next No, time. you won't. No, um, you won't. I but quit. this is actually a prequel 
to Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Treasure Island. That if you read that, you know that like uh, Long John Silver is kind of the main pirate. So it's Treasure Archipelago before the flood came <laughs> in and got rid of the other ones. Uh, and they refer to, they're looking for the treasure of the feared Captain Flint. Mm. Um, and this is about Captain Flint, played here by Toby Stevens, where the guy who's eventually beco- presumably going to become Long John Silver is this kind of grifter, young, 20-something guy who is like <laughs> always... You know, always almost getting killed for his bullshit, but managing to slime his way out of I gotta, it. I gotta stop you, and I have to stop entertainment. Stop trying to make every historical figure young and sexy. I've seen the fucking promos for Marco Polo. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why does Marco Polo need to be sexy? Well, I mean, he's always getting his name called out in swimming pools. Yeah, yeah. And you know how bad <laughs> sex in a swimming pool is? Because yeah. it's bad. It's not so good. You pretty much have to, like, constantly keep relubing. Yeah, saying. that's all I'm saying, is that I don't need every historical figure under the sun. It started with the fucking Tudors. The fucking Tudors <laughs> had to make Henry VIII one of the <laughs> fattest kings of all time. Right. And he was young, and he's, he's you know, he's sexy, and he's, like, got all these women. It's like, okay, yeah, he had women, but he kept forcing to marry him and then decapitating. Yeah, he was so fat he needed two doors to get through. Boom! Just saying. Boom! History jokes dropping at you from every angle. Um, but you know, it's also there's this uh female character in this who uh Anne Bonnie who is like be, her father kind of owns the island, but he does it kind of from a distance, and she runs it for him, and she's kind of you know. I I ruled this island with a harsh hand, but I'm not quite a villain. And she has equal feelings that she can't quite sort out, both for Captain Flint, who himself is kind of a psycho, and for this other dude whose whose name is escaping me right now. I apologize. uh, Who is John Silver? Looks more like he was in a grunge band in Seattle in the '90s. Um, uh, and they both can't stand each other. And there's that love triangle aspect that's wildly uninteresting and terribly played out. Uh, She's kind of a poor actress. Um. The main we're supposed to be interested in what's happening to Flint, but he's fucking incompetent. He's like everything he does, he does terribly. And the whole time, like all the pirates are always about to turn on him and and like go, no, you're a terrible captain, and mm-hmm. you misled everyone, and now we're gonna kill you. And you're going, yeah, kill him. He sucks. He's not an anti-hero. There is no hero here. There's nobody to root for on the show at all. You need some, even if they're an anti-hero, you need somebody still to root for. And this never really gives you that. It beats around the bush, in some terms, literally. hey uh, Way too much around getting around the plot. And yes, there are some cool battle at sea scenes. Um, but overall... Just really not thrilled with what it had to offer. Maybe season two will start to fix things. Certainly it comes to a much more exciting last three episodes than the rest of the show. There's a fuck ton of characters I'm not even mentioning here, by the way, and I'm not going to. There's just too many to get into. It actually becomes kind of confusing at points. In fact, one of the only characters I did kind of like, which was like sort of first mate on Flint's ship, like is like made completely pointless by the end of the show. And like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, yeah, I just gotta say, honestly, unless you, we start hearing season two fixes what's wrong and knocks it out of the park, ultimately black sails is something that you should sail away from. See, I know that you gave a lot of reasons why you shouldn't like this show and you gave an actually very, uh, eloquent review, but instead of listening, what I was doing is I was sitting over here and coming up with, uh, names of characters who will populate my Henry VIII porn version. Oh, good lord. Uh, Henry the Eight Inches, Anne Bonin, uh, the Duke of Cornhole, mm. and Holy, Ro- Holy Roman Emperor Sexamillion. 
Oh, for Christ's sakes. Dirty history jokes, folks. That's what you get when you sign on to Digital Noise. <laughs> Moving on from Black Sails Season 1, we're going to talk about Banshee Season 2. If you thought there was a lot of unnecessary nudity in Black Sails, wait till you get to Banshee Season 2. <laughs> Here's my favorite part of this show. It still takes place in Amish country, and it's the most nudity I've ever seen on television. However, that being said... That nudity and gratuitous violence belongs on Banshee. That's true. <laughs> that show <laughs> has is, nothing else going. That, for that it. show is just about giving you like what your basis instincts wants, and mm-hmm. it does it extremely well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I absolutely. Mean, it's a film noir gone batshit Hollywood action movie out of control. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even like to call this season two. I just call this season id. Season id, yeah, because right? it's just id pleasing left and right. Yeah, it, it, yes, that is true. Um, and I, I feel like if anything, I'd say I don't like Banshee uh, season two as much as season one because season one had that amazing first episode yeah. that had a Hollywood movie level budget to it, and it never gets to that point again. Yeah, the show never quite ever gets. I was back actually to hoping that, that we would have another like big fantastic opening you know episode like we did in the first one yeah and it's like oh they really spent all their money on that pilot episode they did not think they were going to get picked up so somebody was running up the charges on that first episode to like skim off the top yeah, if you do nothing else go and watch the first season first episode because you'll be like damn that was fun as shit uh and yet i will say that for as much as i enjoyed banshee season one i realized how much i enjoyed it for the wrong reasons when i started oh, yeah. season two and i'm like Wait, who are these people again? Yeah, yeah, you do. This is the show you're meant to enjoy for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it really does a, a appeal to your basest instincts. Everybody is a scumbag piece of shit. Um, but they're scumbag pieces of shit who are very good at what they do. Which, as Americans, we can respect that. And as the proprietors of OneOfUs.net, we can definitely respect that. <laughs> we we don't care if you're a serial killer, as long as you're the best serial killer. Yeah. You know, that's why Hannibal we all love Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's like, we just respect excellence. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and the guy, Anthony Starr, Anthony Starr, who plays the lead, Lucas Hood. But by the way, does it look like at one point, someone took like a cudgel to his forehead and it kind of caved in a little bit? Have I, <laughs> little was bit. that just me? Yeah, it was just like, a little bit. The indentation in his forehead that drives me up the wall. And, uh, he was making his head into a stamp that so they could just rub it in ink and put it on a piece of paper. Star pretty much has sex with anyone with a vagina who shows up in this film. I, I, I suspect it's not too long until he has sex with a dude, too, because he's just running out of people to have sex with. Yeah, there's literally a scene, I, th- I can't remember if it was the first or second episode, where a woman just walks up and goes, Hey, how close is your house? Yeah. I don't know, it's over there. Okay, let's go fuck. Let's go okay. Fuck. okay, that's it! End of that's discussion. the whole scene! But uh, the, just to get the premise out of the way... Uh, he is a guy released from jail after a long stint for something he didn't, he did do, but he was, he was fucked over by the boss who, uh, who gave him the job in the first place, intentionally trying to make him get caught for it. Um, and he's on his way out and he's in the small town because he's trying to find the old love of his life who now since has gone straight and changed her name and identity and has gotten married to a, a pink boy, a normal guy. Uh, and, um, while he's there, he's like off in this diner and he meets this guy who's just come to town who's about to be the new sheriff and the guy dies in a bar brawl uh, and he takes his identity. He says, mm. you know what? This is a good job and I got to be in this town anyway. I'm going to be the sheriff. The whole time, okay, so that being out of the way, that's the premise of the show. Ultimately, there's lots of various different levels of crime lords in this town. He brings in some of his old associates, including the funniest gay Asian guy ever. Oh, Job? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's great. So awesome. Yeah. Um, and Looks like Chinese boy George now. While yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, while he's 
trying to be sheriff and do a sheriff job. He's uh, like as as the sort of take no shit, beat the crap out of somebody if they won't talk type of sheriff. He's also pulling like bank jobs <laughs> in the area, which may not seem like the brightest move in the world. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and between that and having sex with everyone who ever appears on screen with a vagina, as previously mentioned, I don't know how he finds time for everything. I really liked the heist, though, toward the beginning of the season with the armored car where they just flipped the pickup truck around yeah. and drove backwards. I yeah. was like, that's kind of cool. Somebody kinda called Vin Diesel. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really did enjoy season two. I think it's a lot of fun, just like season one is. It's one of those, there is no character on the show that is safe. You have no idea. Anybody, like any other show, you'd be like, okay, these are going to be the set pieces all the way through the show of the major. These characters are important to be in these parts. And boy, those people just die left and right. You never have any idea who's going to make it and who's not going to make and, it. And the way they bring the villain back felt like, I felt like I was reading a really bad comic from the early 2000s. Just like, not only is he alive, but like he has that whole like Jason Voorhees stepping out of the grave in part six moment. That was the the... the only thing I really actively disliked about the season was the decision to make it feel like an epilogue to season one in that Yeah, sense. yeah, no, no, like, I get that. I you get that. kill the villain decisively at the end of season one, who's a great villain. Uh, oh Rabbit? God, uh, what the hell is the actor's name? Ben Cross, mm-hmm. who's, who's just incredible at it. Uh, and... And then the, he's the major villain in the second season, except not really. He's yeah. there, but it's more like the hunt for him to make sure he's finally dead. I would have liked developing a new villain who was equally as good. Yeah. At the same time, as completely insane as this show is, I was like, yeah, that's fitting. Like, yeah. that totally fits with the with the tone of this show overall. It, yeah, it is equally insane. There's lots of fun. It never stops twisting and turning. I mean, it's a show. It doesn't It doesn't even approach plausibility. Wait, are you still talking about the sex in the show? Well, with the um, twisting and turning? Yeah, well, that too. It doesn't approach plausibility. But... Never. It never stops being entertaining. I mean, if you like... If you're one of those people who says, oh, the Vampire Diaries or fill in the blank is a guilty pleasure for me. I know it's stupid, but I like it. You clearly just haven't seen Banshee yet. Yeah. <laughs> the guiltiest of guilty pleasures. I'm sorry. When when Amish people are fucking each other in the show Dude, that, and that's not the craziest part of the show. That Amish chick in there is by far the hottest chick on this show. She's and, like one of those like, I really don't care how many times we've seen you naked. I still can't wait till the next time. She definitely raises my barn. Um, We're going to move on. <laughs> To, uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, I just wanted to say oh. this actually has prequel shorts as well. Really? Twelve of them that give, uh, sort of take a look at the Banshee characters beforehand. There's, there's a lot of stuff like that in here. So, yes. Like, they always do that little bits that fill in the lines. I love that Banshee's one of the shows that does the, the webisodes. I was very grateful for that. Because you get to the end and you're like, oh, wait, there's still some more new stuff to watch. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, moving on, we're going to talk about Girls Season 3. Yeah. Girls, do, 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 do. No. Now we'll talk about Girls, no, do, 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 do. Even the Beastie Boys apologize for that song. I kind of like that song. Uh, yeah, well. Because <laughs> it's, it's like so obviously a joke, and yet it does sound like the most chauvinistic song of all time. Well, it, it is the most chauvinistic song But it's, song a, it's of obviously all time. a Like, nobody's going to take that guy seriously. Like, when he's talking like this. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many people took that That's seriously. That's unfortunate. But anyway, <laughs> Lena Dunham and girls in the actual show that I've never watched. So go. Oh, I, I w- am as surprised as anybody that I actually like girls. I thought the first season was... I'm going to edit that. I'm going to take that sound bite. I'm going to put it all over the website. I'm going to kill you. I'm surprised as anyone that I like girls. Oh, shit. Now I said it. Fuck. You might want to save this sample for, like, after you're gone. I'm going to kill you, Brian Salzman. Oh, no. I've already told people, no matter where he is on the planet, if I'm dead, Chris is the prime suspect. Yes. Or Rosamund Pike. 
Or Rosamund Pike. <laughs> it might have been her, too. Uh, she has no idea who I am, but she fucking murdered me. Yeah, you I'm put that sorry. on paper. Um, I genuinely liked the first season of Girls. I really did. And about half of the second season, I was like, I'm really with these characters. I'm really enjoying where they're going. They're all completely up their own ass. And that's kind of the point. I mean, they're 20-somethings. They're, I mean, they're kind of full of shit. You know, they're living in New York City. They want to be popular. They want to be liked. They don't know what they're going to do with themselves for a living yet, even though they've all graduated from school. They're all finding themselves. And they're finding out that they're all incredibly shallow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they really are. But there still has that redeemability about them that you're like, I'm rooting for you all. I want it to work out for you. Uh, certainly one of the only times I can say I'm tired of seeing an actress naked in a show with the lead. <laughs> Just like, okay, that's enough. We get it. You're, you're beautiful, Lena Dunham. You have a, you have a not like model body. You're, 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 and you're comfortable Ruben with that. Asking, you're comfortable with that. That's great. I really respect that, but you can stop reminding us now. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, that being said, um, and then time has gone on with the show and it's turned into in the third season kind of more of a, nobody seems real anymore. They're all so despicable that I kind of don't want things to work out for them anymore. When the show starts, you do, you want them to get their shit together. And now I kind of want them all to die in a horrible fire. As as opposed to a cleansing, happy fire. Well, it would be a cleansing, happy fire. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the weirdest thing is I can't even take away from it that it's funny. It is funny. It's a really funny season. There's lots of points you really laugh, mainly in the first half, more so than the second half, which tries to get more serious, quite unfortunately. But it no longer feels real to me. It feels like a satire almost of the previous girl seasons. Um yeah, I, I do. There's certainly some interesting subtext here about what Lena Dunham has been going through in real life. Some of the criticism of her as a creator, which I think is completely unjustified. Mm-hmm. I think she had, I think quite honestly with girls, she just has too much going on right now. And she's not old enough to know how to multitask to the level that's required of show running a show, being the only, the main writer and doing all these other projects and being a media darling and yada, 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 yeah. showing up at every event and making sure you're wearing Versace or whatever. Um, is that how you pronounce that? Versace? I was pronounced it Levi. <laughs> I see what you did there yeah. because you're a guy and we don't care. <laughs> yeah, we don't care. I don't even care about Levi. I'm no. like, what's that <laughs> brand I've never heard of that's only $18 for a pair of jeans? Yeah. As opposed to 60 Yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> despicable that way too. I'm like, I'll never go to I Fuck Walmart. They're terrible. And then I'm in there like, oh man, the regular store's closed and I really want pizza rolls. And I'm walking out. I was like, yeah, fuck this place. I'm going to buy these pizza rolls and that's, oh, $11 jeans? Dude, really? we're dudes. We don't give a shit. We're like, it's not even that. I order off Amazon. I don't care. I don't know what my basic measurements are. I'm like, it'll fit. <laughs> so much stuff just started it'll, making sense. It'll fit. I'll just wear a belt. It's and okay. if it doesn't fit, I'll just cut them off and make them shorts. I'll grow into it. <laughs> oh I'm a film God. critic. It's inevitable. Yeah, we we're not the best, dude. If if people could see me right now, they would understand that we are not the greatest dressers in the whole world. Well, I mean, for a guy in a bathroom and slippers, you're stunningly handsome. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think I pull it off. <laughs> Where's my beer? It's the e- oh wait, it's turned into alcohol. It's Hold on, the ED of your Evil Dead shirt poking out from underneath that really gives it the fashion <laughs> statement. <laughs> I win at life. Uh, yeah, I. The best thing I can say about this, which doesn't fit at all with the previous seasons, because they were really making Adam Driver's character, who's Lena Dunham's boyfriend, into 
kind of an intolerable prick, they turn around and make him the most likable guy on the show. Like the only guy who seems to see any degree of reality on the show. And I wonder if to some level that's not because he's the breakout star of the show. I was going to say there's somewhere there, his agent going, you know, you're going to be in everything in the next two years. Right. right? And I, I, I can't help but wonder if that sudden turnaround is because shit, like a, everybody's going to like this guy by default. We got to make him more likable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he's really watchable on this season. Like I have nothing else. Watch it for him. He's so good in the season, but boy, is it an exercise in frustration. It's like watching the Larry David show in the sense that you just get so furious with these characters. You just want to strangle them and scream at them. Goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? But see, not- I didn't even make it all the way to the Larry David show. <laughs> that was happening to me on Seinfeld. Right? <laughs> but, but it's not as well written as either one of those shows. Ultimately. Gotcha. It's a good show. It's just not a great show. I still think it's better than Sex and the City ever was, which oh, wow. I know is anathema to some. Like, what? How dare you say that? I, and I watched Sex and the City. So. I really love Sex and the City, but having never really watched Girls, I can't weigh in one way or the other. But I, I'd be I, interested to, to watch it now. It plays with... It's not afraid to play with darker stuff and mm-hmm. making their characters into more negative than Sex and the City ever was. And mm-hmm. I find that more interesting. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think they went maybe a little too far at this point, quite gotcha. frankly. Anyway, that's Girls Season 3. Take it for what you will. So we've talked about Black Sails Season 1, Banshee Season 2, and Girls Season 3, and now we're going to talk about The Scorpion King 4. Uh, which isn't a television It's show. not TV. I'm totally cheating. But it's but, like, come on. How could I not put that in between 3 and the 5th season that we're going to talk about next? But that being said, it sure feels like a TV show. It feels like a made-for-TV movie all the way around. Dude, I'm just going to say this. All right, first off, there The Scorpion King 1 was a piece of shit. It was so... Why there is a franchise built around the movie that, like, was farted out of another franchise and was terrible in its first entry is beyond me. Don't get it at all. I love The Rock. The Scorpion King's a piece of shit. It's awful. It's Um, a piece of camel shit. It's as bad as The Mummy 3, and not saying something. That is saying something. Actually, it was slightly better than The Mummy A little bit better than Dragon Emperor. But the Scorpion King series afterwards... uh, has been just a series of blatant cash-ins, and I will say that I was surprised I liked this better than The Scorpion King. This franchise is a spotlight on the actors who have faded from the spotlight. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love the fact that Lou Ferrigno is, like, the guy who's front and center on the cover. And he's in this movie for two minutes! Yeah, he's barely into this. And inexplicably, at the end, suddenly, is a good guy. Thank you. I was like, wait a minute. Why is he being a... What happened? I will not tell you that I paid in-depth David Fincher levels of attention to this movie while it was playing but that being said I was still like no no I didn't miss the part at all where Lou Ferrigno became important again because that didn't happen he's just here look you've got uh, Victor Webster who plays Matthias the Scorpion King who you guys if you watched um, uh, God what was the name of the show with the, the guy who played Dread um, oh, Almost Human. Almost Human. Yeah, Watch, yeah. Uh, almost Human, I believe he had a role in that. Is that what I'm thinking? Yeah, of? no, he definitely had a role in, in Almost, almost Human. Human. And mm-hmm. then he was in, uh, he's in the show currently, uh, uh, Continuum. He plays like the cop who's the best friends with the female cop character on there. Um, a likable actor. And here they've gotten a guy who has that sort of, hey, I'm huge, but I've also got a kind of every guy charisma. Looks enough like The Rock that we could pass him off as Just The Rock. nowhere near as big as The Rock, but then again, who is? No. You know, no Lou Fregno. Dave Batista. And, and nobody's <laughs> gonna, yeah, you don't want, you know, your lead character going through the whole movie. You put it down. 
Uh, I feel I feel so bad for Lou Ferrigno because it's like, dude, I know that you shouldn't. You, He's a huge douchebag. Okay, but it's like I know that the reason you talk like that is because you're mostly deaf. Right. But you don't have to take these jobs, man. You don't have to be in these shitty movies. Uh, uh, guys got to work, man. Who else? Uh, is, nobody's asking. Hulk got to eat. Nobody's asking him to play any like roles that good roles. No, that's right. true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I do think that like now with all the television shows, like comic books going to TV, somebody give him a decent job on one of these Marvel or DC shows for Christ's sake. I'm calling it right now. He's going to be in Tarantino's next movie. I mean, I'm maybe he's it. just not capable of it as an actor. I don't know. Well, that's because the Hulk didn't wear a cape. Capable. I have all of the snare drums for my rim shot. All of them. Matthias ends up uh, going on a mission to try and make peace to a neighboring kingdom, even though he just got fucked over by the son of the king in that I, I love that you're still explaining the plot of this movie <laughs> as if it fucking matters at all. Well, you know what the thing about this is? I kind of liked this. But it, t- tell me, tell me though, even at your even at your level of enjoyment, that the plot really factored into why you liked this no, movie. No, I mean, it's a, okay, so it's a bunch of dudes wearing swords and sandals. It doesn't even vaguely feel like the Scorpion King original movie, which was no. in, had an Egypt theme, believe it or not. I know <laughs> this is nitpicky. I know I'm nitpicking. What country and era does this movie take place in? No because idea. for the life of me, I can't figure it out by watching it. Well, it's ancient Egypt, and then all of a sudden they're in Versailles in France. Yeah, I'm like, I don't, what the fuck is happening? There's just no attention to historical periods <laughs> all. at all. I don't even care if it's the right period for the Arcadians. I don't care. Just settle on one historic period and stick to it. I mean, I get that at some point we know the Scorpion King becomes sort of immortal-ish. Yeah. That hadn't happened yet. No, So no. we're, I'm unclear. How one quest takes him through all of the eras of history all the way up to steampunk? Look, you want to make this work, make the next episode of Crossover with Doctor Who. Because Might the as well, man. to have this really, it turns out the whole time he was going jumping back and forth through time. Anyway, it's... Look, have you ever seen The Legend of Hercules or Xena, the, uh, the Lesbian Journeys? The, um, the Warrior Princess, yes. <laughs> oh, is that what that was called? Yes, that's... <laughs> I liked my title better. <laughs> it was called Xena Fist of Fury. Xena, <laughs> hand down my pants. Um, <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. This is like a... Like, only thing this is missing is those actors actually being in it. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed those shows for what they were worth. They're really dumb, simple, but fun to watch. Sam Raimi produced television shows that were fun more often than they weren't, but ultimately forgettable. That's exactly what this movie is. It is fun more often than it's not. It's really just as dumb as all get out. But you're not going to remember anything that happened in this a week later. Here it is a week later, and I'm having to look it up on Wikipedia. You have a stuff like Rucker Hauer, who must be almost dead, <laughs> playing a king in this one. Um, uh, Eva Torres is, plays a, a, you know, a diabolical wrestler that later on is also a good guy for some reason. <sighs> Michael Bien. Oh, my God. Michael, Michael Bean is, like, Michael just Bien. sad. It's just... Just fucking sad to watch him and stuff anymore. I mean, I will say that I do think that, like, Victor Webster does do as good a job as you can do for this material of making him watchable and likable. And Barry Bostwick, best known as Brad from the Rocky Art Picture Show, is also, he's kind of playing the crazy inventor guy who's, like, the father of the female love interest, who is actually kind of fun to watch in this Who figures out well. the mystery of the steampunk dragon in this ancient Egyptian uh, Middle Ages Versailles. I don't know what the I fuck is happening. the movie has this theme of, like, hey, man, there's no such thing as magic there's just science and i'm like i'm kind of liking that 
aspect of this. Actually, she you don't you never the, see that. You never movie. see that fantasy. And then, then it's like, because it's fucking man. stupid, Chris. I'm yeah. sorry. Like she gets in the movie, like I'm going to found a new kingdom on science and math. She literally says that. I'm yep. not exaggerating. She does, she does and it's like, that. cool. You've created the kingdom of Schoolhouse Rock. Congratulations. <laughs> oh yeah, and Don the Dragon Wilson is looking old and in this. Yeah, it's yeah. it's sad when you like. Knowing that by the fourth movie, you wouldn't have been able to get Dave Bautista or Ron Perlman <laughs> anymore, even though both of them were in the third one. True. Um, yeah, well, like I said, this is not even the worst. This is not the worst movie we're rev- we've reviewed this week. So <laughs> it's not. And uh, it's not. It's not even the worst movie of this franchise, which I hate myself so much that I've seen every movie like in I this said, franchise. I actually like this better than the first one, which goes to tell you how badly I disliked the first one. Yeah, there you go. There you have it, folks. Put that on the fucking poster. Uh, and from Scorpion King 4 to Boardwalk Empire Season 5. Oh my god, you really did think through this. This is going to be even better by comparison, I feel. I think we didn't like this season of Boardwalk Empire as it as it was, but I think by comparison now, we're just going to be gushing over Boardwalk <laughs> Empire Season 5. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. This has got the you know, near impossible task of creating a dramatically effective final season of a show that's based on real life events and isn't going to Tarantino it and go like, oh, no, they killed it. Like, Actually, Hitler got <laughs> shot in the face a thousand times. Uh, and that's not always the easiest thing in the world to do, to be sure. And mm. if there's a problem with the season, it's just that there feels like there's some amount of struggle of giving it as much narrative weight as some of these characters deserve by the endings we know from real life that they end up having. And I feel like we should probably give the caveat right now that I feel like there might slip in, not that we want to necessarily, but there might slip a couple spoilers. So if you haven't seen the last season of Boardwalk Empire, just skip ahead right now. Uh, but, you know, Steve Buscemi, Buscemi or Buscemi? I think it's Buscemi. Buscemi? Yeah. Uh, he plays Nucky Thompson, who is basically the guy who, uh, when Prohibition kicked in, was running Atlantic City and all the illegal... Uh, He's a bootlegger. He's yeah. a king bootlegger of Atlantic City. Right, exactly. And not one of the ones in history we remember as well. No, because in history, the guy's name was Nucky Johnson. Right. And here's the thing. they have. Ar- you might be thinking to yourself, well, if I just go to Wikipedia and I look up the story of Nucky Johnson, I'll know how the fifth season ends. And while that would be the case for practically every other character on the show because they are based on real gangsters, right. they already changed so much of the actual Nucky's character for Steve Buscemi's arc that you really can't count on that. No, that's very true. Um, but you've also got characters like Lucky Luciano, Al Capone. Meyer Lansky. I mean, you know, Meyer Lansky. All these people are really famous. And in another show, these people would have gotten a terrible comeuppance. Yeah. Because they have become, by the point this point in the show, unquestionably the villains of the show. Yeah. As much as Nucky is a flawed, to say the least, hero... Um, he has in many ways tried to redeem himself. He's tried to become a better man in some ways, even while making terrible decisions along that path. He's ultimately, he sees his redemption in the one woman he's really loved, played by Kelly McDonald, Margaret Thompson, that he wants to, no matter what, he wants to do no wrong by her, by who at this point in the show has left him and kind of fucked up her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, and it, it's funny. Okay, so the last season introduces a few I'll call them characters. They're they're you know like par- they're uh, avatars for historical individuals. I think my favorite in this season is Joseph Kennedy, who there was always. I actually I remember um, 
I did research for a paper, and then in high school I saw a play that was about Jackie Onassis, and it was <laughs> Joseph Kennedy was represented in that play by a giant cardboard cutout of this like monster with a huge fist. Good lord! Like he was just like this overbearing, huge individual, and they talk about in the play about how there were long-standing rumors that he made his money through bootlegging. So that's kind of, you understand why he enters into the fray here. Right. And a guy who's like coming in right at the tail end of it, because this is really at the point where everyone pretty much knows that prohibition is going to end shortly. Like it's just, it wasn't tenable as, as historic, historically it played out. Um, and the bootleggers are trying to figure out what's happened for them next, where yeah. you see some of them who are just blind to this, like Capone and company are like, no, we're going to be kings of the crime forever. Nucky Thompson's a smart guy. And he's like, this shit is going to end. I don't want to become completely, I, you know, everything I'm, I've got is going to be gone unless I find a way to invest in what happens next. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty of being known as a criminal and trying to invent, go legit. I mean, it's that, you know, that criminal, master criminal, wants to go straight, and he doesn't see a way out. The fifth season of Boardwalk Empire is eerily similar to the plot of Godfather 2. Yeah. So similar. It's about Nucky trying to go legit. It's about him trying to set up interests in Cuba. Yeah. It's about him coming sure. up against... Think about that. It's him coming up against a, a rising Jewish gang lord, which in the movie, by the way, Hyman Roth in Godfather 2 was based on Meyer Lansky. I did not know that. So it's like... And, and even his bodyguard, like there's so many similarities between the fifth season of Boardwalk Empire and Godfather 2 that it kind of made me like the fifth season even more. I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm watching a serialized version of Godfather 2. I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't know why that never happened. But, right? Um, you know... The thing I'll say about the season is, don't watch it if you're depressed. Oh my god, don't. Take it from me. you really like, even if they are criminals, die brutally and horribly one after another. They should yeah. have just named the episodes after the names of the major characters that die horribly in each one. <laughs> they really <laughs> should have. Pretty much just seeing every character meet their end and go like, Jesus fucking Christ! Which is exactly how most Godfather movies end, right? with just a fucking bloodletting. If I have a disappointment here at all, it's that Jeffrey Wright, who they had made such an amazing character in season four as Dr. Ah, yes. Valentin Narcisse. Dr. Narcisse. Barely gets a showing at all in this. That's true. And it, and it makes his, his, it makes his ending very anticlimactic. Yeah, it's I will really agree with that. anticlimactic. I will agree. But here's something interesting to note is that the first episode takes place in the year 1920. By the time the fifth season starts, it's 1931. Yeah. That's a hell of a long, like over five seasons, they've covered 11 years. And in fact, this season starts, uh, seven years after season four. So, I mean, we're talking a huge amount of time that has passed between what I thought was a really, like, brutally beautiful ending to season four. I yeah. love the end of season oh, four. Oh, so good. And now we're not only dealing with the aftermath of that, we're dealing with a long-standing aftermath of that. And I think that ultimately this is a completely solid, like, narrative ending to the story. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be very sad. It is not, there's no triumphant moments no. anywhere in this. No. It is a watching everybody one at a time meet their probably just desserts. But yeah. you still, you're like, you've been following these characters. You're still rooting for them, even though they might be scumbags. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's dark. And the other similarity to Godfather 2 that makes this a different season from most we've seen before, flashbacks to childhood. Yeah, now that's an odd running theme throughout this, is that all the way through this, as we're watching Nucky just just trying so desperately to get out and trying so desperately to to survive as everything in the world is turning against him, is the 
the constant steady stream of like him as a child and him as a teenager stories that we're getting, we really like finally truly understand who Nucky Thompson is as a person, how he developed the way he is, why the, the, the people who've always gotten off easy in his life, why they did because Mm -hmm. of what they represent for him from his childhood. And that is by far the number one reason I recommend this season as strongly as I do is because it works. Kudos to Mark Pickering for playing uh, 20 something Steve Buscemi and having obvious prosthetic teeth put in, but still looking and sounding just Just like like, (laughs) any, the mannerisms he has down pat. It's incredible. And, And I will say this, I have a theory as to why they waited till the fifth season to do this. Yeah. Because if you remember, Boardwalk Empire is made by the same people who made The Sopranos. And one of the things about The Sopranos is that the show forced you into uh, the analyst chair. It forced you into Jennifer Melfi's position so that everything you saw wasn't just literal, but it was what it meant. It was it was the figurative nature of what these things meant, which is the job of a psychologist is to sit there and figure out what not only what literally happened in your dream, but what does it mean? Right. And that's that's the reason that whole show is filled with weird dream sequences and, and metaphors that are a little hard to digest the first time around. I really think it's... Um, David Chase challenging you to be Dr. Melfi and figure out what the fuck is going on. Okay. And now considering it's not specifically David Chase that has created Boardwalk Empire, uh, but the guys who created Boardwalk Empire came from uh, came from the Sopranos, I feel it was like there it was Terrence Winter specifically has decided, okay, we have to try something like that because we've been very literal throughout 90% of the show. And I want to flex. I want to be a little bit more like David Chase in this last season and try some of the things that made The Sopranos. Well, some of the things that made The Sopranos the most controversial, even to fans, I want to give that a shot. And this is the last chance I have to do it, which is, I think, why you see so much metaphor. Like, even take the the flashbacks and the dream sequences out of it. The way that they depict Nucky's brother's uh, alcoholism. Yeah is fraught with beautiful metaphor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The way it's presented visually is just... its They they present a fugue state in a way I've never seen before, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, Shea Wiggum also, this is his... This is his season to shine as an actor. Yeah. Uh, even though, like I said, I mean, you're just... If there's anybody in this season who is just, you know, already crawling wounded towards their inevitable tragic ending it's him yeah oh my god how many t- he's the fucking job of this of this oh, series completely the poor fucking bastard uh yeah this is top-notch stuff meaning that in general boardwalk empire if you never took the time with it hey it's finished it comes to a satisfying ending do it watch it one of the best tv shows we've gotten in some time i will say the ending is satisfying the ending makes total sense but I think the Jedi mind trick of The Sopranos is as much as a lot of us didn't like that ending, I kind of wanted a little more interpretation in the ending of this show. Like, yeah. I was a little disappointed that they spelled it out so... It was it was perfect. It was Don't get me wrong, it's the perfect ending. Yeah, I thought right before the very end that should have faded out to a Kansas song. Yes, something <laughs> like... You know, there, I found myself desperately wanting a little bit of challenge. And I was like, wow, fuck you, David Chase. You took this ending that everybody hated, and now it's like somehow in the subconscious part of my brain become the standard for the end of shows. Yeah, that didn't happen to me. I'm happy. <laughs> it's just, I didn't want it to, but here we are. <laughs> You've been poisoned. Well have... has been poisoned. The milk has been soured. May well have been. And this came very close to being my pick of the week. Oh, oh but, Jesus. I totally forgot about pick of the week. But my pick of the week is actually the next thing we're going to talk about. And that is Archer Vice, also known as Archer Season 5. Yeah, well, this is like another five. 
Yes, it is. Two fives. It's, it's a it's a it's if you factor it out, it's a second five within the quadratic equation that is our TV discussion this week. It is kind of weird that they really went all the way with this whole Archer Vice thing, even down to the the season itself doesn't say Archer season five. It just says Archer Vice. Archer Vice, <laughs> which I thought was a beer. Apparently, it's not a beer. It should be a beer. Archer Vice. Oh my God, that would be an amazing Archer W E I S S E. Yeah, yeah. Somebody just need, needs to go there. Mm, they delicious home brewed Archer Vice. Mate, every bottle is hand brewed by Woodhouse himself. And then you drink it because what the shit, Woodhouse? No, it's funny though that, like, while we say all that, this is not my favorite season of Archer. Really? Yeah. In fact, this is probably my least favorite season really? of Archer so far. Wow. And I, I know. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying it's like a significant step down or something terrible like that. It's, it's the Thor the Dark World to your other Marvel movies. No. No? no I wouldn't even put it on that level. There's okay. nothing inherently faulty. Vice about with, it? <laughs> inherently faulty about this. There's a lot of really phenomenal moments. It's a major change for the direction of the show. It's a very ambitious change for the direction of the show that feels a bit fumbly for the first four episodes or so to me. Like Hmm. a bit like, we're not really sure where we're going with this. It feels very uncertain, very like testing the waters and not confident to move aggressively into the single narrative that this this season has become. I don't know if I felt like that. I I do feel that the, the seasons that preceded it were very much about concepts were about monsters of the week were very uh you know self-contained even the two-parters are very you know self-contained between the two of them right and i feel like archer vice is really more about no i can't stop thinking about being archer vice <laughs> delicious cold brewed cold filtered archer vice um but no i think this season is way more about developing one one gigantic story of failure whereas every episode True. of the previous season seemed about seemed to be about Isis failing at something this is like Isis fails at this one long chain of events that you know that they were going to fuck up even if it was one episode anyway so the the things that I I understand what you're saying yeah. but to me it didn't so much feel like faltering as far as a show as much as it felt like the continued deliberate faltering of an organization that has no idea how to be a cartel. And I think that does actually maybe color a little bit of the enjoyment of the show. Cause you're like, man, the show feels like it's failing all the time. It's like, no, it's actually just the people in the show that are failing. All the that time. are failures and have always been failures. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess it was just, maybe it got to that level that it became a little depressing instead of funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like this previous seasons, like, yeah, they're fuck up, but life goes on. And they, and now here's the next mission that, that, uh, you know, Archer is going to fuck up for everybody. This one is just, it actually feels kind of sad at points. But that being said, so many good things in here. The Pam being completely obsessed, addicted to cocaine. Carnivorously addicted to cocaine. Fucking hysterical every time they do it in here. And the fact, fact it, that it makes her thin yeah, is hilarious becomes, to me. I'm super hot. <laughs> 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 and then, of course, Shirlene becoming a country star. Becoming the country star. There was actually even uh, Shirlene Tunt. Yes. Which I'm pretty sure there's a cunt joke in there. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure but, there is. Uh, even reflecting the extra features where you get a Midnight Blues music video in the bonus features and a Shirlene Tunt interview on Wake Up Country. <laughs> <laughs> they really they even released her whole album on iTunes. Yeah, that's like, okay, you're really going, you're taking this whole thing as far as it's going to go. 
There's other great moments that, you know, like the Burt Reynolds moments. Yes. There's a lot of those moments. There's a lot of Burt Reynolds moments, not involving Burt Reynolds. Yeah, it really gets into the Gator stuff in this season. But I feel like it's not till the second half of the season, which is the whole season ultimately is. ISIS has been uh, shut down. And because, spoiler alert, it turns out they were never authorized to be a spy organization in the first place, which made so much sense to me when you think about how terrible they are at it. And, and so now they're like, well, what do we have left? And it's like, well, we have like a ton of cocaine we seized. Let's become coke dealers. We have literally, not figuratively, a ton of cocaine. <laughs> they, they, they become drug dealers. The problem is... That anyone would probably encounter. In fact, you can make a live mo- live action movie out of this su- topic. You know, okay, so you're an average guy. Suddenly you find yourself with like a thousand kilos of cocaine. So what do you do with that? This goes, I mean, the even com- indicating, even going, you're going to sell it. You don't care about the law. You don't care about the morals or anything like that. You're like, fuck it, I'm going to sell it. Okay, great. What next? Yeah, because this goes the complete opposite track of Breaking Bad, which is like, I've never sold drugs in my life, but I'm a smart guy and I figure out how to do it and become great at it. This is like, we've never sold drugs before and we're terrible at most things, so we're also terrible at this. Right, right. Very, very true. Um, Still a lot of really, really funny stuff in here, certainly. I mean, H. John Benjamin is the funniest voice actor alive. <laughs> Just so true. good and keeps that up. Um as I said, when it gets into where they all go to San Marcos, this uh, not the place in Texas, but which was a little confusing for me for the first couple missions, <laughs> but but like a, a third world country and basically uh, become the Cyril becomes the dictator of New San Marcos. <laughs> that stuff is real funny. There's a whole run at the last several episodes of this that's like really is one long episode. Um, with dealing with all that, with the revolution in the country that is got some of the most laugh out loud funny moments of the entire show. Yeah. No. The question. Krieger clones are one of my favorite things. The Krieger things. clones is a riot. So I, Lucky Yates four times? Yes, please. Yeah, so good. But like I said, for me, it just took a little way, a while to get there. When they were just futzing about in, in the apartment in the city before they left to go to the third world country, I was a little like, where is this going? Maybe, but I will I will I will present you this and I think you'll probably agree. The way this season wraps up makes the entire season one episode in any other season. The way sure. it wraps up, you're like there is always a fucking way. And they they make reference to this a lot and I think this is what's so good is they make reference all the time. Ray gives Archer a lot of shit in this season for just assuming everything's going to work out and Archer's response every time is it almost always does. And then you realize as you watch the season, you're like, oh, I know where this is going. And sure enough, yep, that's exactly what happens is that life uh, 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 finds, finds a way. A way. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to give anyone the intention of being a doomsayer for the show because I'm certainly not. I just felt like this overall was the most uh, haphazard of the of the seasons and doesn't work perfectly. But when it does work, which is more often than not, it it's really good. I, I will say, I will admit that I am looking forward to them getting back to being a spy organization. I am too. I As much as I love this season, I, I am definitely looking forward to them. I, but you can't argue with the greatness of fucking actually getting Kenny Loggins to do the voice of Kenny Loggins True. and play an acoustic version of Highway to the Danger Zone. They've, this show's made a specialty out of getting like guys that are now not really pertinent anymore from the 80s and playing themselves. Oh, yes. I mean, I just... I hope that next season finds a way for Burt Reynolds to be like a character all season long. Totally. Burt Reynolds all season long. Like The funniest moment in the history of the show is the first Burt Reynolds episode. Yes. Which is like... 
hold your stomach, can't believe you're even watching this, laugh out loud funny. I can't hear you <laughs> over the sound of my giant throbbing erection. <laughs> Burt Reynolds! Oh my god, Burt Reynolds! <laughs> True story. Well, this is, uh, you know, like I said, this is going to be my pick of the week. I, I love this. I love this release. I love the packaging they put cool together for it. Yeah. Um, the special features. Like, I, I, I just think it's great. I think this whole release is great. I really like this season. There's a lot of great stuff in this week's episode, but I, I think... Because of my personal proclivities, both toward Archer and Miami Vice, gotta give it to Archer Vice. <laughs> gotta go with Archer Vice this week. It's the manliest release this week, and by that I mean Michael Manliest. It's the Michael Manliest <laughs> release of the week, absolutely. Well, honey, is the next you, movie we're going to talk did about. Did you shrink the kids again? <laughs> Good, fuck those little bastards. No, I just shrunk my attention span, because this is another one I didn't get around to see. Aw, Brian. What happened? Uh, is this the one with Jessica Alba dancing? No, thank God. <laughs> well, then I don't care, sir. <laughs> you can check me out right now. You're so shallow, sir. So shallow. <laughs> you know what? If it's not Jessica uh, Alba dancing half naked, I just don't want to see it for any movie ever. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, there was Sin City 2, so uh, change that. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, Honey, uh, yes. known as, in its original Italian language as this is probably not correctly pronounced. Miele? Miele. 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 Yeah. Is a arty little film screened in the uncertain regard <laughs> section at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival. I don't know what that where, means, where, and I speak French. Where it won a commendation? I'm like, okay, so it didn't win, but it won a commendation. Is that like a runner-up prize? I'm not really sure. Je ne sais pas. From the ecumenical jury. <laughs> the ecumenical with. <laughs> They gave an award to a movie and then figured out what they should do about all the Catholic priests? Like, what does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. I'm very upset that I don't know what's happening around the world here. Good, good. Um... This is a actually pretty interesting little film, character piece with, uh strongly based around the performance of the main character, Jasmine Trinka, who plays uh, 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 Honey, and the directing quality of uh, Valeria Golino, where uh, Honey, in question, which is her nickname, she plays a woman who has taken a illegal job as someone who helps people die who need to die. Now, I don't mean like she's an assassin who kills bad guys. I mean, she is uh, someone who d- goes to people who are very, very sick and in a lot of pain and, you know, not legally gives them the medicine, helps them through it, takes every level of going to like, okay, I'm going to help you actually die because you want to die. And she ends up meeting this guy who is a older man who has set up in the program who she gives the the poison to doesn't want someone to be there usually people want someone to be there to help every step of the way this guy just wants the poison and then to be left alone um it turns out that he's doing this not because he's actually he's lied on his forms basically <gasps> he's doing it because he's not dying of something he doesn't have immense amounts of pain like physically he has immense amounts of pain uh, psychologically, he's just, he's depressed. Mm. He's, he's old enough. He's been through life. He's seen people we know, everyone we know he loves has died. He's just doesn't want any more life. He's just done. Mm-hmm. And to her ethically, this person who like, you know, like sees nothing ethically wrong with 
killing people who are in a lot of pain does see a lot of things wrong with killing someone who's just in psychological pain. Now, there's a boatload of discussion you can make out of that uh, distinction, certainly, as well. And I don't feel like ultimately that's the movie's goal, is to get into discussing that distinction, but it does have her sort of forming this very interesting friendship with this guy as she keeps insisting to go back and check on this guy. He's very much a curmudgeon um, and trying to in her in in and of herself understand why anybody would kill themselves just based on depression. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being a very pleasant, very emotionally satisfying film that asks some really tough questions about euthanasia, about like oh, they said it took place in Italy. Depression. Yeah. So why is it about the euthanasia? Euthanasia. Hey, oh, old euthanasia. jokes. It's a pun. The joke's so old, you should probably euthanize it. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure we should. Um, I really liked this movie. While it's certainly like a not for everyone slow burn of a movie, if you like foreign character pieces uh, with great performances, really sexy lead. You know, every once in a while, it's not often, but you'll see a woman with really short hair who is just like, damn. A Marion Cotillard. Yes. Mm -hmm. She's one of those, this actress is one of those women where you're like, oh my God, you are so sexy. Fantastic. Indeed. Um, and she is like, you know, she has a series of lovers that she's not entirely honest with in her life. And it's her coming with dealing with ending up having to find some sort of honesty with them and herself. It's, it's an excellent little foreign film that I I really do recommend going to check out. Even though in the United States it was barely released, mm -hmm. in Europe it was considered to be phenomenal. So there you go. There you have it. Well, now we're going to move on to the most infuriating movie of the whole week, and not because it's bad at all. Uh, You've Dinosaur Thirteen. Be talking about Dinosaur Thirteen. Dinosaur Thirteen is a movie that will make you want to run down to your local government office, no matter if it's a post office, if it's the Alderman Shack, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know how government works, and you will scream at people, and they will have no idea what you're talking about because this happened years ago. Um, and this is my pick of the week. It's a really good movie. I don't know what it is about me that I love a documentary that makes me furious, but uh, this is that documentary that's going to make you go, are you fucking kidding me? It will make you roar with anger. Was that a dinosaur joke? It was a dinosaur joke, yeah. Clever boy. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so the story here, like I said, documentary, so real story is that in 1990, this American paleontologist, Pete Larson, and his team that worked for one of quite a few companies that work for profit to some some degree, uh, digging up uh, artifacts and, and, and it, It's like a half and a half. Half of it... Half it, and a half, yeah. They sell fossils, but only so that they can continue their research. Right. and they're But they also do... Most of their stuff goes in an actual museum. This mm -hmm. piece belongs in a museum. But they're in uh, South Dakota. In the Badlands. They have permission from the owner. The owner of the land, Simon yeah. Machine has been paid to, like, d dig on their land. And they find the m largest, and I mean fucking big, and most complete T-Rex skeleton ever find, found, yeah. which they call Sue. And it's a huge deal. And you watch this, and you're watching them every step of the way because they're documenting everything. And it's like, that excitement is palpable. You feel And it's contagious. That. Even if you have no interest in paleontology whatsoever, yeah. how excited they get about this discovery will make it'll choke you up a little I mean, these bit. These people are crying in scenes where they're just talking about how excited they remember being. Yeah. It. 
I mean, it was everything. This was one of the biggest discoveries in the history of paleontology. And, and since everybody's happy, here comes the U.S. government to fuck everything directly in the ass. Out of nowhere, the FBI shows up. And so the F- and the fucking National Guard. Yeah, and they called the National Guard in to say, we're seizing the skeleton and all of these relics and everything in here. Everything they'd ever in done, fact, not just they, related they, to they, the Tyrannosaurus. They seized everything they had, all their tools, everything. Ridiculous. And saying, you were digging on federal land. And they were like, excuse me, what? No, we weren't. We were digging on this guy's land. We paid him for that. And then it became... Oh, Oh my god and then you watch this oh film god. develop into a just the biggest clusterfuck of red tape as it turns out this guy was not completely honest about what was going on that there apparently it was native american land that was being held in trust yeah uh just this entire huge amount of people that once this has gotten all this press suddenly want a piece of it yeah and them being you know like even more worried about not being able to personally work on the skeleton but like worried that like the FBI who were haphazardly packing this thing up yeah. couldn't give a shit about this at all. Yeah, so that they this, actually this had to damaged. help them. They had to help the FBI pack up this thing that was being stolen from them just so they can ensure that it was safely transported. Yeah. So even though they're they're like their hearts are broken, they're railing against it, they have to help the FBI pack it up on a truck because otherwise the FBI is going to break everything. And what this movie's really about what it's really about is how one person with a tiny amount of bureaucratic power can fuck an entire town. Oh, my and God. And then just because he want, he refuses to admit he was ever wrong, continue to fuck a town. The, the simple fact that the guy in question, the landowner was not raped by wild dogs on camera. Such a piece of shit. <laughs> Such a, and not only that, but when you get to the end, you realize he's still going to make money off of the sale of this thing when he's the reason it's fucked in the first place? This is just the worst possible example of government interference without any sort of centralized understanding of what actually was going on. And it's it's another example of private interest trumping public interest because it's one fucking landowner douchebag deciding he's rich and wants to get richer and completely robbing these people who, by the way, have already paid him for the damn Tyrannosaurus Rex. This will make you so mad watching it, but it will also give you an appreciation of the art of documentary making. Yes. Which is an incredibly well put together documentary. Absolutely. It will give you just a big old emotional wet kiss to these people. All of these paleontologists, your heart goes out to them. You feel like you know them. Uh, the sh- oh my god! I don't even want to tell you for spoiler's sake the shit that some of these people actually have to deal with. As this case, not only is like this dinosaur taken away from them, but then the vengeful ass government decides to prosecute them for made up shit. Yeah, just completely trumped up. Char- Again, as a smokescreen to oh no, we weren't at fault. You were, and here are some federal charges to prove it. And everyone in 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 uh, South or North Dakota going what. The fuck are you talking about, I mean, South this, Dakota? This is going to put every case you've ever heard of of the federal government getting involved in have a big old question mark on top of. Don't it. watch this and the Whitey Bulger documentary no. back to back because you'll want to burn down the White House. I'm no, so, like, I, I'm not one of those crazy like let's destroy the government people, but right. I, Kind of got a little leftist when it came to this one. It's it's inefficiency. It really is. Inefficiency and greed working hand in hand and totally fucking over the pe- the only people who deserve to have a real hand in what's going on. Yeah. Well, I know? mean, it boils down to refusing to admit when you're ever wrong because yeah. you want to get elected for this other thing and you don't want a black mark on your record. So you'll instead fuck over an entire town than admit that you made a mistake that could be cleared up in a second. Yep. 
Uh, and of course, this comes with uh, some deleted scenes and more stuff about what happened after the movie uh, with with Sue, like where you can see it now because it actually is in the Chicago Museum. Uh, stuff about how they how you would actually put together like the bones, like I mean paleontology um, stuff for people who are interested in paleontology, how this works. I mean, it's a pretty solid package, and it's why it's my pick of the week. I think overall they really did a great job, not only with it as a movie but as a package altogether. Be prepared to be furious watching it and write angry letters to your congressman, but it's yeah, totally solid stuff, and one of my favorite documentaries of the entire year, one of my favorite films of the year. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now we're going to go to something that's not that. Uh, okay. It, presumably. You know what? Now we're going to go to Dinosaur 13 again. Now we'll start over. From Dinosaur 13 <laughs> to 88 somethings. I don't know. It's just called 88. I, <sighs> HB 88? I, I, Isn't that a Star Wars reference? I'm not even sure. Uh, that's IG 88. Is it IG 88? Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm a HB 88 is a sunscreen, I think. <laughs> I think that's SPF 88. What else you got, is that Chris? It? Is that it? I don't know. When you get to 88 references, you're going to see some serious shit. Um, <laughs> I got 88 reasons to like to hate this movie, but a bitch ain't one. There you go. Because <laughs> I actually like Catherine Isabel in this role. I actually like yeah. the cinematography in this movie. I think it's really I like that you're pretty. grasping at things to like about 88. But that being said... It's still 88. It's still kind of a crappy movie. It's, it's not good. It's... Flashbacks, the movie. Flashbacks, the movie. <laughs> somebody, somebody really liked Kill Bill. Like, really fucking liked Kill Bill. Yeah, and yeah. decided, what I'm going to do is a movie about a woman who works for a crime boss, and then she tried to leave the life of their new boyfriend, and then shit went wrong, and then she's got a list of people she's going to get revenge. I'm like, yeah, I've seen this movie. It's called Kill Bill. Well, it's Kill Bill crossed with Memento. And not in the good way of either of those things. I would say it's more like Kill Bill crossed with the Bourne identity. Yeah, it's, okay, you know, Because she's like, oh, I didn't remember that I was a badass killer. It's you like, know, okay. this movie could have been good, is what drives me crazy about it. I guess that's true. There's yeah. a lot of good stuff happening in the technical side of this movie. I think Catherine Isabel has proven herself before to be a really solid horror and action type actress. I really like her, her performances a lot. I mean, Ginger Snaps alone, you're like, hey, hats off. Phenomenal job in that. And I think here she is giving it her all as she's both plays both this completely fractured like you know panicked woman who has no idea what's going on and a self-assured killer because she's gone through a personality split after a traumatic event but there's no payoff that makes a lot of sense for all that i was just thinking another title for this movie could have been the double homicide of veronique (laughs) she like it spends way too much time like editing. I mean, the editor is the guy who has to be punished for this movie more than anybody else. Cause it just, I mean, I think this is actually a 20 minute film mm-hmm. that just reuses the same flashbacks over and over and over. And I over think you might be right again. about that. Yeah. Um, as we keep going back, it's totally nonlinear. It's very confusing in that context. Uh, and, it reuses the same footage so many fucking times. You're like, will you please stop going into flashback sequences and just tell this fucking movie? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, no, no. I'm with you on it's that. It's not even long flashback sequences. Flashback flashes. Yeah. You're like, stop it. Just tell the fucking story. And here's my other problem is that, you know, if you want to make the Kill Bill comparison, which I do because I did, um, the bride never killed innocent people. And in this movie, we're supposed to assign our allegiance to this woman, and she's murdering, like, random people along the side of the road. Yeah, there's... And like, they don't even take the time to, like... If you had taken the time to establish that that person was a scumbag, it would have been fine. But you don't. You introduce them, they get shot in the head, she walks off with their car, and you're like, 
Wow, what a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like I understand that she's a crazy person, but we are ultimately supposed to feel sorry for her, and the movie does everything it can to keep you from actually feeling sorry for you. Not through, like, intentional storytelling, but through incompetence of yeah. writing. It also has one of the silliest narrative signposts throughout the movie of, like, and she'll be talking to somebody and then just milk will fall out of their mouth. Yeah. And they connect it back at the end, but it's like, okay, but that was still a really silly visual that you probably could have picked anything else for that. And it was like, if you were going to dominate the film with her having hallucinations based that, that were ended up being usual connected to the traumatic hallucinatory event. usual suspects keys back to the traumatic yeah. event, then okay, fine. But they really just have that and this weird thing with gumballs and they both seem really contrived and silly. To the point it. that I wonder if a third grader actually wrote the script that the, the cues back to the trauma are milk and gumballs. <laughs> really? You couldn't think of anything else? I mean, I did like Christopher Lloyd as the, uh, you know, the bad daddy stand As Bill. Uh, bad, yeah, as Bill, basically. Yeah. I liked him in the role. I did. He did okay. He yeah. didn't, the, even like at the very end of his performance in this, he ha gets a great monologue. And you're like... Terrific. It's too bad I don't feel anything because you haven't given me enough about this character yeah. in the context of it to feel anything. But Lloyd delivers the monologue really well and does a good job. Hats off to him. Look, I can't... Like, all the other characters, yes, they're fucking awful in this movie. Like, terrible performances. But Isabel and Lloyd both do such a good job. Like I said, the cinematography is at points really trying to be kind of daring and gutsy. And I'm like, there's neat stuff in here, but it feels like there's there are these people who are going to go on to do better things. And then Everyone else should never work in film again. <laughs> and it's just the title. I oh my the god! The title has nothing to do with anything. It really doesn't. It's like wait, so it's the name. It's the number of a hotel room where some stuff happened in the film, and not even any incredibly pertinent stuff. Here's the thing: it's the name. It's the number of the hotel room where things end up happening not right. things that happened to her that were crucial to why she's the way she is and not even the final stuff no just like at one point in the th in the third act some some shit happens there or i guess if you were going to put it linearly in the third yeah. act and it's not a real important thing it would be like calling uh true romance theme park because there's one scene in the theme park you know what True. I mean? It's and like not a, even the last scene and not even the last scene not even that important a scene True. It just it's That's fucking ridiculous perfect analog Anyway, moving on from 88, uh, we're going to talk about Desordre of Doom. That's racist, sir. So That's racist. Desordre? Oh, wait, I forgot. You actually are Japanese, so never mind. <laughs> anyway. No, uh, Hai's not here right now. No, Hai is not here, and he's Vietnamese. Um, Sword of Doom is the Criterion release this week, if I'm not mistaken. Yay! This Yay, is my Criterion. second choice for Best of the Week. Very, uh, you know, I saw this movie years ago. I was in this phase. I was living in Louisiana. And despite the shittiness of living in Louisiana in any city that's not New Orleans, um, the library was actually surprisingly well-stocked with Criterions. Really? So Yeah. So I watched uh, actually a movie we talked about not too long ago, Vengeance is Mine, the first time I saw it was from this library, and Sword of Doom, same situation. And I remember thinking then, and revisiting now, I have the same feeling, that it's sort of like... It's kind of like a trashier pulp novel version of a Kurosawa film because it hits on a lot of the same metaphors, hits on a lot of the same thematic subjects, but it's just like straight up murder and the visual metaphors that it constructs are a lot more tawdry than anything you'll see in a Kurosawa movie, but, but it's fun. But it's 
really well made. It's no, it's it's very. I don't want well even made. like. I don't want to sell this as like. Oh no, it's campy. It's not campy. It's no, 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 just no, no, Not as subtle as a curse. It's not <laughs> subtle at all. There's it's there's not. a scene where a man falls on a woman as he's made her take her clothes off, and the next thing you see is this like this water pump going in and out of a hole. And I'm like, come on, guys! Like, like we was, don't know that one already. Well, you know, this was made a long time ago, so maybe that wasn't as common. Yeah, but it was made after the invention of subtlety. And then they have the train going into the tunnel, <laughs> fireworks going off, and oil geysers going off. <laughs> maybe they shouldn't have been playing Ode to Joy during. But um, this is a, a it's not even an anti-hero story. It's a story following a villain. Yeah. Uh, ta- uh, Tatsuya, Tatsuya uh, Nakadai plays Ra- Ryu Tosuke. I'm having so much fun li- listening to you do this. A psychopathic samurai who apparently has this strange style he kind of developed on his own that is unbeatable. Like people cannot defeat him. Well, the still the what do they call it? The still style, the calm style. I can't remember quiet style, exactly something like that. But um, he is one of the guys. He's just I mean, he kills people super fast. Like no one is a challenge for him mm-hmm. at all. And we see him early in the film when he kills this old Buddhist pilgrim who he comes across praying for his own death so that his daughter doesn't have to keep taking care of him. And then he goes and takes care of that for the guy. Uh, so there's this weird sort of like, there's a weird thread throughout this, even though this guy is clearly insane. There's no end of camera shots to indicate as he's sort of like got the glassy eyed stare and smile into the distance that he's batshit fucking crazy. Yes. That nonetheless, he thinks he's doing the right thing a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's far, like we've talked about before. A villain is far more interesting when they think they're, they're in the right. They're far more interesting when they're not just twirling their mustache. Actually, I think, you know, we mentioned serial killers a lot on this show. I think that's probably the more apt way to think of this is less as a samurai movie and more as a serial killer movie I mean, he, because he just travels around the he travels around the country murdering people and by the end of it it's just a race to see who's going to avenge their victim that he's caused first you know and the weird thing is like with the samurai films that very much makes us a samurai film to me is that it's always about the code of the samurai and this guy has a code. It's just the code of a crazy person, <laughs> you know? He yeah. doesn't relate to people or scenarios in the, like, in any sort of context of the real world. Mm-hmm. He's incapable of putting that on there. So he just directly deals with these scenarios in a way that usually leads to someone getting impaled with his sword. He has a code the way Hannibal Lecter has a code. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Uh, he's not actually eating people, but um, everything starts to go terribly wrong after he is supposed to have a duel with this guy who is up for being the lead of a, a, a fencing school nearby. And his wife, the guy's wife, comes to him saying, like, please don't kill him. I'll do anything you want. I know you can beat him. He knows you're going to beat him. But you to get nothing out of defeating him. Mm-hmm. You there's no advantage to you at all. He, we're going to be penniless. We will have no options. He'll be dishonored if you defeat him. Right. Uh, and he says, "Okay, I'll do it, but I'm you're going to have to let me rape you." <laughs> uh, that's the water pump. Scene. There's a lot of rape in this movie. Well, Just, it's a Japanese film, so yeah. But still, it's like, like for, saying hello in Japan, like. There was one like I'm thinking back to the catalog of uh, of Kurosawa. There's a movie that's all about a single rape, Rashomon, and I think that's the most rape we ever see in a Kurosawa movie. Yeah, 
And in this, it's like every t- every time he visits a new village, it's like, oh, cool, wipe the rape slate clean and start over. But you end up where like he's in a situation where yes, he is trying to do what he was supposed to, what he had agreed to do. But the guy finds out what happened with his wife and is just manic with rage and mm. ends up dying in the match anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then everybody in the world wants to kill our not-a-hero main character, right? Yeah. You, including his younger brother, who has sort of built his life around learning to be capable enough to defeat him. And mm-hmm. we see this gradual decline of the certainty of Ryu as he meets the phenomenal Toshiro Mifune, who's a fencing master, who shows that, oh, you're a badass? Well, guess what? I've been doing this a lot longer than you. Check my shit out. <laughs> this reminds me of the situation where you watch a movie like The Equalizer and you think, wow, this is this is uh, paying a lot of homage to the work of Tony Scott, specifically Man <laughs> on Fire, so much so that they got the same actor to be in this one. I'm like, this is this is so a tribute to uh, Kurosawa that they actually got Toshiro Mifune to be in this movie. He was one of the biggest actors of Japan at the time. You can't make samurai movies without getting Toshiro Mifune. You almost Mifun. can't. Um, but the way this thing builds, what it builds into is just this gore fest of madness at the end and yeah. every samurai there is is coming at this guy and he is just killing them all which is weird for a older black and white japanese samurai film which I mean, is again why i kind of think it's a, like a, a slightly trashier version because they don't mind like the gore they don't mind the viscera all over the screen well the weirdest thing about this is actually based on a book that was cons- that is the longest novel written in any language ever what the fuck? Yeah. And it was supposed to be the first part of a series of films. And they ended up not getting the budget to make any more. So the ending of this, which cuts off like right in the middle of an action scene, was supposed to be a cliffhanger. Like, what happens next? And it's funny that it actually works just as is. Perfectly <laughs> fine. <laughs> but it is like, people go, well, that's a weird place to end it. It's because there was supposed to be another film. But- Somewhere you're going to read a review of this that talks about the brilliance of deciding to cut it off mid-action sequence and what that really means. And then they look, oh, it's oh, because wait, we didn't have the money to make. Yeah, yeah, we never got the money to make for the sequence. <laughs> but this is a really, really good Japanese samurai film, and it's not like most of the classic period Japanese samurai films. Uh, there's not a lot of extras for a Criterion Which release, is odd. Though. There's a brand new audio commentary with a cinema scholar, Stephen Price, uh, the author of a book called Classical Film Violence, that talks about the director's body of work, uh, his obvious admiration for Yojimbo, as you said, and framing similarities between that and the Sword of Doom, uh, and various different aspects of this in here. And then a, a leaflet, illustrated leaflet with an essay by another critic about the film. I'll tell you who is a big fan of this movie and I would have been impressed to see an essay by is Park Chan-wook. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, no. I, I'm, I'm saying he has to be. If, I don't know for oh. sure, but he has to be because if you watch the sequence toward the beginning where uh, our anti-hero, our villain, is just cutting through the guys after that that uh, the match with the, the husband of the woman he raped, it's a single shot, one weapon, and every time he kills somebody, people like back off for a second and then they attack and it just keeps panning to the right. I'm like, yeah, I saw this in Old Boy. You replace that sword with a hammer. This is the exact framing like from Old Boy. Sympathy for Mr. Everyone Wants Vengeance on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was like, you know, Park Chan Wook has definitely seen this movie, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about another movie I didn't get a chance to see. And I it really disappointed Chris that I didn't see it is Wetlands. 
Yeah, I was disappointed you didn't see this. And not for the reasons because I'm like, oh, dude, you missed one of the best movies of the week. You wanted to commiserate, didn't you? I wanted you to suffer like I (laughs) suffer. And the weirdest thing about saying that is that this is not a bad movie. Okay, now I'm really confused. It's just one of the most difficult movies for a man to watch you will ever see. The title uh, on the on the thing on this it says uh, a quote is the most WTF NSFW movie at this year's Sundance Film Festival. I would have added ever <laughs> <laughs> because holy shit, you just don't want to know the amount of stuff about what goes on inside a woman's body as that you get to see in this film. Okay. And I don't mean in a, like somebody ripping out a woman's intestines and going, Oh look, there's poop in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, a, this is a German drama. That's okay. Stop. That's a kind of, you a, have already hit upon the reason that a, it's this fucked up and B, yeah. I probably will never watch it. It's a, it's a buildings Roman. Uh, you know, a coming-of-age film for those people who don't speak pretentious geek talk. I don't, but (laughs) I just... Oh, my God. It follows Helen, who's 18 years old, very hot, except that she has no concern for body hygiene on any way, shape, or form. In fact, she's actively against it. When she grew up, her parents, who are a little overprotective, would, like, very concerned about, like, the vagina. They're like, don't ever do anything that might be unclean around your vagina because you're going to become totally sick and die. And she does things like go to the grossest toilets in town and rub her pussy all over the nasty. What the seats. Germany? Seriously, the fuck is wrong with you? The fuck is what? I don't care if I sound insensitive right now. I don't care if it's not all Germans. Germany, comma, the fuck is wrong with you, question mark, exclamation point. Really against taboos about the female body and what have you. Um, She has a best friend, Karina, who's, you know, like a little overweight, very insecure, who she's kind of helping to try and meet a guy and also like, you know, sharing formative female, this is our body's experiences with. And, uh... Everything gets the movie really goes into where it's where it's going to take place when she's shaving her anal hair. The girls do this for the record, and she cuts too fast, and uh, because she suffers from really brutal hemorrhoids, she slices one of them open. Just why? Oh God! And has to go to the hospital, where uh, her plan is. Not only to, of course, have surgery, which you have to with that degree to get all these like wounds removed and fixed in her ass, but to find a way to get her separated parents back together by both of them having to come to see her and also form a relationship with her hot male nurse, Robin, who is has a sort of off again, on again relationship with a with a nurse at that same hospital. I'm sorry, you said this isn't a bad movie? No, it really isn't. It's actually a really interesting coming of age film that Ugh. that is has a brutal honesty about fucked up people from Germany. Well, no, the gross stuff that's in everybody's body. You know, the stuff we don't like to talk about. Our snot, our, like, vaginal vaginal mucus. Our propensity our... to rub our vaginas on shitty toys. Wait a minute, no, that's just Germany. <laughs> Sorry, no. I, I, oh, my God. Oh, German porn is the worst. I'm just gonna, like, trying any, to make... anytime anyone's ever sent you a video just to gross you out, spoiler alert, that video is German. 
I or Japanese or Japanese. Yeah, there's some of that too. Yeah, I just the, saw R100, so don't even start the, with me. The two countries we royally fucked up during World War Two <laughs> right. have never gotten over. Well, they did have it coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and now weird stuff has them coming. So there you go. Oh boy, mm. um, this really well performed film, really well directed film. There's a a, a mix between just brutally honest reality and sort of hallucinatory, vibrantly fun sequences. I mean, it's almost a music film by the way that it's so dynamic, the way it's going. It's a really well-made film that will make you gag repeatedly during it with the stuff that this girl does. I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, she has the surgery for these, this anal wounds, uh, and they cut out the uh, the offending piece, and she's like, "Can I actually have that?" It's like, "Yes, but you have to throw it away after it's like you know biological waste." She doesn't throw it away, and let me just—I don't even want to say any more than that. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Horrible, horrible things happen that you never thought would want to see with a piece of someone's anus. What? What? What's the opposite of an erection? An any? I have an any right now. Yeah, all I can say is like this movie. It's already forming a cult of women Ugh. who love this movie, and it's just unflinching honesty uh, and about the the young female experience. But boy, don't eat anything while you're watching this. To each their own. But ladies, if you do really love this movie, please let me know so I know who not to date. Because <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> I, oh. I, I I can't help. But I long for the simple days of Von Trier. I can't. Right. I can't help but emphasize again. This actually is a very well made film. It's just one of the most difficult films to watch I've ever seen, and that includes Lars Von Trier's films. Cool. Won't be watching it. Um, Damn it. We're going to uh, go on to another movie that I don't think either of us will watch again, and that is Jezebel. Jezebel. It's, it's a Jezebel's a horror film uh, produced by the fine folks over at Blumhouse Entertainment. Sounds like a country version of Bill Cosby. <laughs> and everyone gets touched on the forehead with my dinkeridoo. This is, yes, the the Blumhouse school of let's make another horror movie like everybody else is only a little bit better. I think this is more the Blumhouse school of we can buy that movie for $12. It might be that. I, be this that. really feels more like they got involved after the movie was well finished and they were like, yeah, we could sell that. All right. We can totally sell that. You get to describe the plot of this one because I've been doing that. <sighs> okay, so Jezebel... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, so this this young couple is all happy because they're expecting a baby. So automatically you know that ain't going to happen. Because they're way too fucking happy at the beginning of the horror movie. <laughs> so sure enough, a car accident. Because I don't know what it is about horror film epilogues. Or I'm sorry, prologues. That no one can look both ways before they pull into traffic. Nobody knows how to drive. That's the first scene of most horror films is people not checking left, right, and then left again. <laughs> and then getting plowed by a truck. You always forget about the left again. Oh, the left again. That's right. My wife is pregnant. I should probably not take chances like that when pulling into yeah. traffic. No, it's left behind you're supposed to forget about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So they get hit by a truck. He dies. She loses the baby. Oh, and she can't walk. She's lost the use of her legs. So fun day for her. Oh, and on top of that, the hospital... The hospital administrator is a cunt and is like, is, you need somebody to pick you up. You can't stay here. And she's like, okay, well, my mom's dead. I don't really have any friends. My, I haven't spoken to my dad since I was a kid. She's like, oh, okay, can he come pick you up anyway? It was yeah. like, 
Well, thanks, bitch. You yeah. Don't have another system other it's than like, this. My f- fucking husband just fucking died it's, in a car accident. I have no use of my legs, and you're kicking me out of the hospital. Jesus, you can't even say take a walk, lady. Well, guess what happens when you have no health insurance? I know, right? Yeah. So her dad. Thanks, Bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more accurate. Uh, her dad, who um, you know she hasn't been in her life for a long time, comes to pick her up, takes her to the family home. Uh, she starts watching these videotapes of her mother who died of brain cancer shortly after she was born. You know, it just, it starts off like, hi, this is me. I just wanted, I'm seven months pregnant with you. I just wanted to say hello. And then it d- devolves into her reading tarot cards and telling her something awful is going to happen to her, which when so many awful things have already happened to you is the first thing you want to hear. And her father is like, I can't believe you shouldn't have even found these tapes. Your mother had a brain tumor is what killed her. She was talking crazy by the end. You shouldn't watch these fucking things. She was not your mother anymore. And tries to take them away from her, only to have supernatural forces take him out of the equation. Yeah, here's the rest of the movie. Ghostly, 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 hidden secret, the end. I mean, it's the plot of pretty much every supernatural movie you've ever seen. Every movie that has tried to rip off the ring and has no idea why the ring was as good as it was, doing it poorly. This is somebody going, no, 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 no. I know how we can do Skeleton Key right. Oh, And they don't. (laughs) I never actually watched Skeleton Key, but I found myself wondering as I was watching this, because that was a New Orleans set film as well. Yes, that's, yeah. Wondering... I wonder if this is as bad as everyone told me Skeleton Key was. Skeleton Key is not a great horror film. I actually think it's a decent thriller on its own. Hmm. I just think most people went into that movie expecting it to be like ridiculously scary and it wasn't and i'm talking about skeleton key because i don't want to talk about jezebel anymore but i will now um so <laughs> there's so many problems with the the biggest problem i have is it's not they don't do a terrible job establishing the creepy stuff except that they do that thing every once in a while that really bugs me about modern horror when it's like if it's not scary just make it screechy yeah. if it's not scary just make it loud and it's like you do that but then you also show us way too much there are moments where you're subtle and it's creepy and eerie. And then there are moments where it's like ghosts are just like sitting in a bathtub where they're just like yelling at her. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's not scary because it's obviously not a, it's not a ghost. It's just a woman covered in muck. Like that's not the same thing. Yeah. And that comes up again at the end when all the curtains are pulled back and you see the ghost and who the real perpetrator is from the other side. And then they're just, they don't look ghostly at all. It's there's, we have too much of an obsession with twists. Let me just say that. Mm-hmm. And the twist isn't always a bad thing. I mean, look how well it worked in Gone Girl. Worked mm-hmm. phenomenal because it was well thought out in the whole All three story. of the twists in that movie were well thought out. But there doesn't have to be a twist by default. Right. You can just make a scary movie without one. Like, where was the twist in The Exorcist? I don't remember. Or in Jaws. Yeah. I don't remember a twist in those movies. There doesn't have to be a twist. And it's gotten to the point that, like, like we're just spending all our time waiting for that to, to kick in so we can decide whether or not this is even worth your time at all. Or not. Also, I think we have reached a... Uh, we've basically reached critical mass on the concept of the disposable protagonist. Mm. I re- that really drives me nuts. If I'm sitting there watching a horror movie and 80% of the time I know, oh, it doesn't matter because you know the protagonist is, is cannon fodder for the supernatural, sure. then what's the point of even rallying behind them throughout the entire movie. I do admit, like, the, uh, there's way too many many movies where, yes, it is just that. It's like, okay, I, I am getting really tired of films where the heroes don't make it because, because somebody thinks that's scarier. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I think, like, look at the Babadook, where they make it, but with 
you know, with a caveat, uh, with a caveat. Yeah. And I'm like, that's scary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, or, or Gone Girl or, or, is especially scary because the opposite is true. Or even, you know, The Conjuring where they make it and you have a sense of a weird sense or horror movie of adventure at yeah. the end of it. Like, haha, we succeeded. We triumphed over evil. But can you believe that fucking shit just happened? I think, it, I think it's a problem of a changing standard because if you look at the classic horror movies, the classic haunting movies, that those characters were never disposable. You look at Annieville, look at Poltergeist, they were never disposable. Yeah. I mean, there were more people killed from the cast of Poltergeist after the movie than in the movie. And this is the weakest excuse for a twist going in that in that dark direction unnecessarily. Yeah. It's poorly handled on every way it could be poorly handled yes. for that. And it's a shame because I actually thought the first like act of this film is effectively setting up tension. There's some really effective creepy scenes. It's an interesting scenario. I'm like, where are you going with this? I'm actually interested. It just doesn't follow through at all. No. And and in fact the ending, like, it's like, who are we supposed to be rooting for? If this is the ending of the film, yeah. what did the rest of any of this matter? Why do I why should I care? Why do I care? Yeah. It's just it's very it's very you can sell that sort of thing in a television show anthology format type of thing, uh Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone or something like that. Yes. You can sell those stories in that way. But please stop making movie after movie after movie that ultimately nothing was worth anything. It's it's not just it, it's nihilistic. I'm yeah. sorry. When you when you were beating this much shit down on a girl who lost her fucking baby and her husband in the beginning and is in a wheelchair through what movie has the fucking balls to be like, "Oh, we're just going to keep fucking the chick in the wheelchair." Like that's creepy. I do want to throw out that the actress in question, uh I believe it was uh Sarah Snook, does a really good job with some really awful material. She does a really good job of being an effective Michelle Williams lookalike. <laughs> no, I actually liked her. I thought she gave a decent performance. No, I think she's it. I just think that a lot of her performance feels like a Michelle Williams performance. Oh, okay, fair enough. I just, I liked her. I wouldn't mind seeing her in more stuff, so I want to give credit where credit is due. Fair I enough. liked her in this film. Which is hard to find in this movie, but true, there true. we just did. We're going to move on from Isabel to the first of two titles that are going to represent our giveaway! And the first one... I was like, what is this, the Bugs Bunny cartoon? I don't know. <laughs> What's opera, Doc? Um, the first one is a film called Revenge... Of the Green Dragons. Yes, not Revenge of Pete's Dragon. That's no. an entirely different movie that I would kill to see. The Revenge of Pete's Dragon. <laughs> I would love to see just that. Just Elliot movie. the Dragon, like, just, I'm done taking yeah, shit. Like I'm burning Passamaquoddy like a... to the ground. Yeah, it's, yeah, he, like, somebody kills a gangster's kill the kid, and he's like, you know what? This shit will not stand. See if it's easier to sell your snake oils when they're boiling. <laughs> I remember far too much about the movie. I didn't remember that much. But, <laughs> we but got a I'm, bill of sale. I am Helen ready to talk about this one. Hey, oh. Um, Revenge of the Green Dragons is a movie by someone who really likes Martin Scorsese. Well, so much so that, uh, that, uh, his movie, Infernal Affairs, which is truly a phenomenal film, uh, and the sequel, Infernal Affairs 2, was remade by Martin Scorsese. Oh, you mean this into, director's film? Yes, okay, yeah. into The Departed, okay. which is a remake of those films. Whoa, Scor whoa, 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 whoa. Revenge of the Green Dragons made by the same guy who did Infernal Affairs? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh my god, that's horribly disappointing. 
Because Infernal Affairs is such yes. a better movie than yeah. this. A- Andrew, Andrew Lau, uh, who, who wow. made the Young and the Dangerous wow. film series, which is really great. The Young Affairs trilogy, although the third one's not as good as the first two. The first two are so good. And now Revenge of the Green Dragons, which is an English language film uh, with uh, uh, Chinese immigrants in America in gangs that was uh, produced, executive produced by Martin Scorsese. And I think that might be part of the problem is that it's Eng- English language. I agree with because you. Because I think there are lines of dialogue that probably sounded really good in their original, I don't know if it was Cantonese or Mandarin, but in English it just sounds like a frat boy wrote a gangster movie because it's like, yeah, we're the green dragons, we're the toughest motherfuckers on the street. And I'm like, stop. Well, the, the, <laughs> the, it, the biggest problem with this is it does delve a little bit too much into overly familiar cliche. I mean, it is ultimately based on truth. It's based on a New Yorker article that was about the story, the real story of Chinese American gang life in the eighties and nineties in New York city, which was a real thing. And I think that that aspect of this film, I was really interested in. There is some like kind of fascinating stuff with like, Wow, that that was really happening there. Yeah, and yes, on the whole, it really was. And amongst this made-up storyline around a Chinese immigrant, Sonny, uh, played by Justin Chan, uh, who is not forced to, but sort of like, what other option do you have? Join a Chinatown gang called the Green Dragons, along with his best friend. Worked his way up the gang hierarchy. Part at least partially because he was kind of a natural shot with a gun. Like yeah. Just almost a prodigy was shooting like, yeah. Oh God damn dude, you're good. Um, and became really well known in the community only to find that when things got tough, he wasn't willing to go the completely evil route. He wasn't willing to kill innocents, mm-hmm. even though the gang was like, Hey gang first buddy. Yeah. And I think there is a much more interesting story here than the dialogue and performances would suggest. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I, I found myself just like really kind of woefully upset by just cliche after cliche being spoken uh, by these characters. And then of course, because there's this, connection between this director and Martin Scorsese, Ray Liotta shows up. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> that's, you know what I pictured? Is Scorsese, like, him going, you gotta get somebody, you know all these famous actors, we gotta have a recognizable actor on the DVD cover. And Scorsese's like, okay. Just went through his list. Hey, Bobby, what's going on? <laughs> really? No? No. No? Okay. okay, okay. All right. Hey, Pesci, what's happening, man? I haven't seen you for, uh, oh, oh, sorry, didn't realize you were. Really? Okay. Even you? Okay, sure. fine. Okay. You know what? I'm not going to go through everybody on my list. Let's just call Ray Liotta. We know he'll say yes. Yeah, Ray Liotta doesn't <laughs> say no. And it's crazy to me because Ray Liotta will, in the same year, appear in, I'm not saying great films, but very artistically minded films. Sure. Like he was, you know, in the year he was in uh, Killing Them Softly, which is, yeah, I've, I've gone back and watched it. I still don't necessarily like the movie a lot, but I recognize that there is an there is definitely an artistry being employed to that film. It's like an, it's like an award season gangster movie okay whereas with this it's like and with a lot of the other movies he does it's just like i don't understand how you are the guy who'll just take any paycheck and the guy who also seemingly accidentally ends up in good stuff too (laughs) right i don't i don't understand that and here he's playing a very ineffectual character he's a cop character he's not i mean obviously he's the big head on the cover but 
he's not really in the movie all that much. I mean, I don't want to point out that Ray Liotta himself does have a very large head. He does. So it was a natural choice I mean, for that role. It wasn't like everybody had the same size on heads on the cover, and his <laughs> is just like, a big head. You're in it's DK just, mode on Goldeneye with Ray Liotta. I mean, it That's was photoshopped like. with him as the most prominent head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think overall, if you're a fan of... Um, if you're a fan of crime films, this is one of those instances where I, as a, as a mafia nerd, really like seeing, uh, like, branching out from the Italian mafia and seeing, like, what was it like for the Russian mob in America, the Irish mob in America, and, and this with the Chinese mob in America, and the way they specifically, uh, you know, split up one section of one borough of New York, and... So yeah, I think there's merit to this. I didn't I didn't love the film, but I didn't Mr. love it either. But, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's... And, and there's some good stuff in here. And I think a fan of both uh, the Infernal Affairs films and that sort of thing, and wanting to see what this director is doing next, who's definitely a, somebody to to keep watching, Andrew Lau. Um, it's it's one you're going to want to check out, and you can win it from oneofus.net. Tell yes. us how you do that, Brian Salisbury. If you want to discover for yourself if this is your cup of green tea, here's how you do it. Oh, green tea. Follow us at oneofus.net, or at oneofusnet on Twitter. I'm already fucking this up. At oneofusnet on Twitter, and then respond to the following hypothetical. If you were creating a new season of the Nickelodeon show Legends of the Hidden Temple, which, as you remember, featured duo teams of kids with names like... The Green Monkeys, the Purple Parrots, the Blue Barracudas. What awful, horrible color and animal combination team would you come up with? Boy, I have never even heard of that show. You've never heard of Legends of the Hidden Temple? Oh, it was so important to me growing up. (laughs) Because, you know why it was important to me? Because I got pissed off at every fucking kid that went to the last round and was running through this giant, elaborately constructed temple and couldn't do things like assemble three pieces of a silver monkey in the right (laughs) order so they could get the Huffy bikes, so they could get the trip to space camp. I'm like, if I was in that motherfucker, I'd be in it. Yeah, I know where the temple guard is i know exactly when to give him the medallion and when to send the partner in and which doors are going to be open if i pull on which that's not the point look <laughs> i'm getting away from myself I don't here know what's happening I'm- <laughs> call the police listeners you will understand what i mean i want you to create a new team for legends of the hidden temple and i'm doing this because every time i heard revenge of the green dragons i was like you thought the green dragons are in legend the- they weren't there was a green okay chasing the green dragon i don't chasing know. the green dragon yeah. our other giveaway this week and the reason i've saved this for last is because we started with a david fincher film and we're ending with a liam neeson crime film that has actually flourishes of David Fincher, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, certainly. And that is A Walk Among the Tombstones, which is fucking great. I'm, look, I love the hell out of this look, movie. I'm just going to say this. I know you guys out there are a little jaded when it comes to films where you're like, oh, it's an action movie with Liam Neeson. Yawn. I get it. Look, Liam Neeson is one of those actors that, like, just when you're getting ready to give up on him, he makes something that you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah. And this year... This is the one. Yeah. Uh, this is not a... Fuck nonstop. This is the Liam Neeson movie this year to see. And this is not one of those, like, like scene, you know, scene, uh, Liam Neeson tries to find out who did something. Liam Neeson finds a suspect. Liam Neeson has a big action scene with the suspect. Next scene, repeat. This is not one of those films. This no. is actually a very... Uh, what did I say? It's like a very 70s sort of cop film yeah. uh, in feeling. Just just knee-deep in grit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where he plays Matthew Scudder, an, a uh, New York City Police Department ex-officer who, as we find out later, not to be so specific, left the police force after a traumatic event that we see at the very beginning of this film. 
And now he's like, he spent the last eight years in AA, which he's dedicated to, to the point of almost mania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like almost, he doesn't really know anyone who's not connected with AA in some way at this point of his life. And he moonlights as a private eye who doesn't even have a license. And he does it more of a sort of like, well, if something drops in my lap, I'll try and help. And what drops in his lap this, lap this time is one of the guys he goes to AA with or that he sponsors, uh, says his older brother, his wife had been abducted by kidnappers and he was pretty sure they had murdered her. And he goes to investigate it and finds out that the guy's brother in question is a drug dealer, successful drug dealer, not some street level. He lives in a beautiful fucking condo. Oh, played by, by the way, Dan Stevens, who was in The Guest, which was last week's giveaway. Yeah, that was Dan Stevens. <laughs> it was Holy Dan shit. Stevens. Uh, and he's like, I want no part of this. But when he finds out how truly fucked up these people were who took this by, I mean, like, we're looking at serial killers here. He's like, okay, I may not like this guy, but somebody should put a stop to this sort of thing. Yeah, it goes from... It, you know what this reminds me of? You talk about 70s movies. This is actually early 80s, but it reminds me. Is 10 to Midnight, where 10 to Midnight is a Charles Bronson movie where you expect one thing because it's Charles Bronson. You'd expect him to just be shooting everybody in revenge, which yeah. in a Liam Neeson movie these days, that's also what we expect. True. But instead, this is a very gritty detective procedural about trying to apprehend serial killers and it's very dark and it's very murky much like 10 this is Liam Neeson's 10 to Midnight I guess is what I'm trying to say okay I haven't seen 10 to Midnight it's fucking phenomenal but this is a really solid it's not an action film it's like I said it's more of a procedural than anything Mm. else it's has a lot of emotional weight though. Absolutely. It. And a lot of that is subtext. A lot of that is stuff reading in because Liam Neeson's character here, uh, uh, Matthew Scudder, who is the, a long, the main character of a long running series of books by very famous author Lawrence Block. In fact, this is based on the 10th book oh, in wow. the series about this character. We need to get the other nine stat. Yeah. The writer, there's an extra feature on here where he keeps talking about like, this is a character that like after four books, I thought I was done with them. And then like, I'll go like, Oh my god, I have to write another one. I just realized what his character has to do next. And like, actually finds himself agonizing through the books because he's torturing this guy. Mm -hmm. But knows, like, he's a real person to him in his head. Matthew Scudder. And yeah, he's a miserable bastard. (laughs) You know, totally. As we all are. Well, even more than us, Brian. Okay, well, fair enough. Yeah, we're just having trouble paying to stay alive while we do this for a living. (laughs) This guy has people dying around him all the time. Yeah. 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 No, this is this is a really great film. I think it's very underrated. It came out in that there was a boom right after the summer of just fantastic crime films with Equalizer and this and uh, The Drop and just uh, John Wick. Like yeah. we got all these movies after the summer and it's like crime film, crime film. Great, 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 great. And this is this is probably this this might be my favorite of that batch. As much as I love Equalizer and John Wick, I think technically. This is probably the best and my favorite of that I mean, group. I would say I enjoyed John Wick more than this because mm-hmm. that's just pure audience pleasure yes, it all is. the way through. Yes, it but is. this is arguably the better made, the more serious of the two films. Yeah. And really, really solid, truly despicable villains that come to nasty ends. And yes. just like, yeah, nobody comes out of this good by the end of it. And it's just great, dirty, filthy, noir yeah. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Absolutely. So for this one, what you're going to do is you're going to follow at one of us net and you're going to respond to this hypothetical, which is I want you to give me the name and an incredibly brief plot synopsis 
of the worst Liam Neeson film that has not been made yet. Oh, Jesus. Like, what is the worst title and brief plot synopsis of uh, a terrible Liam Neeson film they haven't made yet? So, you decide what that means. Hashtag that uh, Tombstone giveaway. Oh, and by the way, hashtag the previous one, Dragon giveaway. And we'll pick our favorite, and those people will win a copy of Revenge of the Green Dragon and Welcome on the Tombstones, respectively. Open to U.S. citizens only. Sorry about that. They are so lucky. They are lucky. Those U.S. citizens. Those U.S. citizens. (laughs) They're coming to America to win our giveaways. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's Digital Noise. As always, please click on those Amazon links. We can't tell you what a big difference that makes. Please, 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 please. Even if it's not to buy the titles in question, anything you buy by clicking on them, after continuing to navigate Amazon after that, we get a kickback from that. It actually brings in more money than you'd you'd think. But our biggest bread and butter, the biggest way you can help us out the most, the biggest way you can help us keep functioning which is <laughs> As a, a month-to-month scenario yeah. uh, for our own personal lives uh, is by becoming a subscriber and there's good content on there now there's going to be much more to come I can't tell you how much that helps by putting in that extra effort to do that I mean even if it's just at the base $2 level it helps a lot definitely and follow the show on twitter at DigiNoiseCast. follow the website on twitter at one of us net follow us on facebook facebook.com slash one of us net follow us individually on twitter i'm at bry guy salisbury i'm at chris cox critic and that's gonna do it so for chris this is brian reminding you that no release is too big no release is too small from criterion to catastrophe we review them all <laughs> <laughs>